Hello. Hello. Welcome back to the Weirdest Thing Podcast. Yay. I am your host, Scotty Milder, uh, and that coming into your ear holes was Amelia Poro. <laughs> yes. Hi, everyone. I'm glad yeah. to be back. Yeah. So uh, we got some, I don't know about your story. My story is actually pretty fucked up, like more than I thought it would be <laughs> when okay. I started mine, doing the research. Mine is not okay so uh well, and i go second this week right yeah that's good we'll uh we'll leave uh on a, a relative high i guess <laughs> yeah um uh do we need to do any catch-up uh how's virginia i think fine you know it's all it's all going good sundays are our fridays Mm, okay so it's like it's the end of our week um and tomorrow is our is our one day off and because because we all got covid they added a bunch of performances of nine to five because that's you know it's the big summer musical um so we had i'm trying to remember i know we had at least two days of two nine to fives a day wow. and we did one this afternoon so i'm coming off of like three nine to fives so i everybody's i think everybody's kind of like mushy but like yeah. <laughs> with the exception of me and like one or two other people i got done with the show today and i'm done with the show I'm, I'm done with work cool right but a lot of other people went back to rehearsal this evening Mm. (laughs) and the players the sweet players have a 7 p.m show tonight well they're probably done with it already but they had a 7 p.m show tonight yeah so (laughs) you know uh, we we were talking about this on the phone earlier in the week and it's like for all the people who think like the life of a professional actor is just like glitz and glamour that it's easy or that it's easy like Mm -hmm. no like yeah, like I was, uh, I can't get into it, but I'm I'm possibly up for a, a new job. Maybe mm-hmm. we'll see. And uh, I was complaining about having to do it all like from my house, like wearing, you know, <laughs> gym shorts the whole time. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. It's a different. <laughs> yeah. And it's just, it's, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of the way that it, this all goes. And it's interesting to be here. One, because I think I'd mentioned this the last time I was on the show that like the way this particular company works with the schedule and, and it being a resident repertoire company and all that stuff it's just it's different right and so there's it's something that's not really happening in a lot of other places that is not to say however that the schedule is any less extensive anywhere else that you go Mm -hmm. it's just it just ends up being different but yeah yeah, it's really it's really a thing that like you know running my own theater company and stuff in albuquerque and to see people being like um it's mother's day so like are we having a show or and i'm like wow wow. it's It's very different very very different different. uh, yeah like here we have thanksgiving day off 
Mm. Like when I was, when I was a full and like, you know, the, the, the company members here at Barty, they have Thanksgiving day off. They have Christmas day off, but it's like, <laughs> you can't be like, oh, I'm not going to be at the show on Thursday. Cause it's my birthday. And we're like doing a thing like that doesn't yeah. exist um, right. in, in like the life of a professional actor. Um, yeah. So it's always interesting to be met with that kind of stuff, especially when we were like starting Duke City Rep in Albuquerque, that it was, you know, I'd be met with that kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, this is, this is different. Um, yeah. How to explain to people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And also it's an interesting time to be doing this kind of work professionally as well, because, you know, people are starting to be like, hey, it's not cool that like I had to miss my father's funeral. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's, that's not okay. Or, you know, I haven't been to any of my siblings' weddings or you know, right. I'm, well, I mean, I think as always, I don't want to talk about like the bright side of the pandemic or like the silver lining, you know, right. We don't um, want to be those people, <laughs> but I think it did reframe for a lot of people what work requirements should be and like, you know, the work life balance and stuff. Yeah. And like a, a lot of people are just kind of not willing to go back to like business as usual and like for good reason. And honestly, I mean, acting is, is, kind of different in that it is on stage and it's you know you kind of have to be there but like a lot of work doesn't have to right (laughs) but you know a lot of work really doesn't have to be like in an office like you know so people are kind of figuring out like hey this remote work thing like kind of works better for me and like I really don't want to go back yeah it's been interesting too to hear stories about people who work those kind of jobs and that you know they get to a point where their company's like okay well we're ceasing working from home and everybody's like okay well by mm-hmm. yeah like and, and also just interesting to see how much things like micromanaging and stuff permeate the corporate world how it's yep. like if i don't but if i don't see you how do i know that you're getting your how do i know that you're working and it's like well look at the work that my, i yeah because you. my work gets done right <laughs> yeah and i i don't know do i want to make do i want to make this claim i'm gonna make it and then if people want to refute it i guess <laughs> feel free but i don't feel like there's any office job. I'm not talking about like doctors. I'm not talking about teachers. Cause that's a whole talk about a whole bunch of right. unpaid labor that happens. But I like, I feel like there is no, if you, ha- if your job is going to an office and like under your computer for 40 hours a week, I can't think of a whole lot of jobs where the work that you have to do in a week actually takes up those 40 hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and so to insist that somebody be in an office and add on to that commuting time. Right. It, it's well, just... particularly with gas prices, like oh you know, what they're <laughs> oh what God. they are right now. Like yes. yeah, I'm like I've been working remote for the last two years. And I, I was kind of already semi-working remote and like mm-hmm. you know, we're I'm starting to get back into the classroom and like I, I, I enjoy, I'm actually like to the point where it's like, oh, it's kind of like a nice novelty to like go and like talk to students in person. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I also don't feel like, like, I feel more and more like, I'm not sure how necessary that is. Like, I, you know, and obviously I'm teaching at a community college, but it's like, in some ways I feel like, I don't feel like it affects my teaching approach that much, you know? Yeah. So, and, and this is like, you know, teaching obviously is like a social job. But if your job is like, you know, data entry or something, there's no reason you have to be in an office. And I think people are starting to realize that. 
I think know. so too. And I think there's just, you know, going along with the other stuff I was saying before, I think, and, and that you were saying is that there's just been a bit of a reckoning of like, we are a country that lives to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, that's a pretty shitty deal. Yeah. <laughs> You know what I mean? Especially when I know that there are wonderful employers out there and props and kudos to them. Uh, But there's also a lot of like really shitty employers out there. Right. Well, and like, let's be honest, like the wonderful employers are more the exception to the rule these days than 100%. 100%. Okay. So apparently this is now a communist podcast. (laughs) Well, I mean, we were, we were like borderline a communist podcast already. So (laughs) let's just embrace it. I'm just going to throw the Soviet national the dead, Yeah, just the dead <laughs> airwaves immediately, even though we're not on the radio. <laughs> immediately shut down. <laughs> All right. Well, should we go ahead and just dive in? Let's do it. Okay. Well, I think I'm going first. So I believe this week we're both talking about uh, a couple different wars. Am I yes. correct? Yes. Uh, but we're but we're using the term war, I think, fairly loosely. Yes. I'm unwrapping um, a cough drop. So if you can hear the. I can super hear it, but you know, we're leaving it in. It's reality. <laughs> <laughs> Real unfiltered podcasting. Also like the weirdest thing. Out of fucks to give podcasting. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm actually gonna tell a story of a war that took place in the animal kingdom. Okay. Um, so this week, uh, and I don't have mm. like a cold open or anything, but the, this week is the Gombe Chimpanzee Wars of 1974. Okay. Now I do need to give a content warning for anyone who is aware of chimpanzees or has, uh, sorry, spoilers, uh, seen the movie Nope. <laughs> you you know what chimpanzees are capable of, and I'm going to talk about what chimpanzees are capable of, and it's not pretty. Mm, okay. So if you're not a fan of animals murdering other animals, uh, you might want to skip to Amelia's uh, story. What if I'm not a fan of animals <laughs> well, <laughs> murdering animals? You're just going to have I, to like can I know muscle it up. Story? Oh. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. I mean, you can uh, if you want to. <laughs> Ugh, this is rough. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. So here's my sources. Uh, Wikipedia, as always. An mm-hmm. article from uh, the CBC a website. It's Lewis Leakey selected three women to study the great apes. They inspire others today. The article is written by Caitlin Starowitz, who produced the documentary She Walks with Apes, which I believe is about Jane Goodall. Um, And then another article, what the Gombe chimpanzee war taught us about human nature. This is from January 5th of this year from Mm. bigthink.com written by Tim Brinkhoff. All right. Well, to start off, let's talk a little bit about Jane Goodall. Okay. Um, Now, I think everyone like knows the name Jane Goodall. And I'm going to stipulate something before Uh I get into her bio. Okay. As I was like doing the research on this story, I was stumbling across stuff online where people are saying that Jane Goodall is problematic. And that mm. there's some racist history and some classist history. Okay. I tried to find stuff. The only thing I found seemed a little like that's a stretch to me. That's okay. not saying there isn't stuff that I didn't find. So I'm just saying, like, I'm stipulating that I know that there's chatter out there about Jane Goodall being problematic. I'm not going to get into it. It's not the focus of this story. So, okay. Okay. Jane Goodall. She was born Valerie Jane Morris Goodall, 1934, in Hampstead, London, to a businessman named Mortimer Herbert Morris Goodall. I love those good British griefs. Names. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a novelist named Margaret Mefanway Joseph. 
And I, I'm totally unsure on the pronunciation of that middle name. Okay. She was a novelist who published under the name Van Morris Goodall. The family moved to Bournemouth when, and I'm sure I pronounced that wrong, is it Bournemouth? Who knows? When Jane was a child, she attended the Upland School. And while she was a child, she fell in love with primates. Uh, mm. very young when her father gave her instead of a teddy bear he gave her a stuffed chimpanzee that she named jubilee mm. um and she said about it she said my mother's friends were horrified by this toy thinking it would frighten me and give me nightmares but instead it actually made her kind of fall in love with animals and to this day it sits on the dresser in her home in london she's still alive yeah yeah she's still alive unless unless she passed away like real recently and I didn't find it. But yeah, she was actually just oh. recently interviewed by Prince Harry. <laughs> wow. Okay. So even again, even as a small child, she was interested in animals and in Africa. And in 1957, when she was 23 years old, she finally had the chance to go to Africa and check it out. She visited a, a family friend who owned a farm in the Kenya Highlands. After she arrived in Kenya, she, she wanted to stay a while. So she found work as a receptionist and then contacted a guy named Lewis Leakey. Lewis Leakey was a renowned Kenyan slash British archaeologist and paleontologist. Jane just wanted to talk to him about animals. Like she <laughs> did. It doesn't sound like she had even like designs on a job. She was just like, hey, this guy knows shit about animals. I'm in Africa. He's nearby. I want to talk to this guy. Mm -hmm. um so she reached out to him just gave him a phone call but he is actually looking for someone to get in like get their hands dirty in the mm -hmm. study of great apes he was an archaeologist and paleontologist and he was convinced that studying of great apes was crucial to understanding the behavior of early humans and uh hominids so he was looking for a researcher and again like jane she's she's real young uh she hadn't even gone to college he asked her to come work with him as a secretary and then he went to his wife and co-researcher mary leakey who was a paleoanthropologist and basically was like i'd like you know this jane uh she seems real real sharp um we should you know see if we can get her involved in this primate research that we're wanting to do mm -hmm. and she approved uh, his wife approved and so lewis and mary they sent jane back to london to study primate behavior with an anatomist and primatologist named osmond hill she also studied primate anatomy with a paleoanthropologist and physician named john napier after this period of study she was one of three women including diane fossey and barute galdikas who Leakey then sent into the jungle to live among and study the great apes. Okay, Diane Fossey. Is that, she, is that her name? She's the other mm -hmm. one I know of. Okay. Yeah, she's the gorillas in the mist. And back to what I was saying about like people saying that there's problematic stuff about Jane Goodall, but I wasn't mm -hmm. really able to find much specific. Mm -hmm. Google Diane Fossey, like, there's hell a lot of racist stuff <laughs> from her. She and, and and if anyone doesn't know Diane Fossey, she's the one who went and studied gorillas. Uh, the movie Gorillas mm -hmm. in the Mist is about her. Sounds like late in life, she really, because she, she kind of taken the fight to the poachers, which, you mm -hmm. know, fair enough. But she took it to the point where it sounds like she really started to see the African people as like the enemy in her. Oh, uh, well, that's messy. Yeah. Okay. I didn't find anything like that with Jane Goodall. The one thing I kind of found that people were pointing to was she had a comment and i don't remember the exact quote but basically like saying like poverty is bad for the environment because of like all like people in poor societies kind of desperately consume the natural resources and so people were sort of saying this is classist and she's saying the poor people are bad for the environment i was like that's not really how i read her quote i thought it was more like hey maybe 
we should do something to help take care of poverty because it's among other things bad for the environment yeah it didn't sound uh, to me like she was blaming the people but who knows? yeah i mean i would also be like um i don't think that poor people are what's well, it's a bit like it's a bit like oil companies being like use a paper straw and it's like that's not right. what's causing well like, yeah that that's true i mean it's like i think what she was specifically talking about is like deforestation in poor countries where people are like chopping down the woods for firewood and stuff but she's kind of ignoring like deforestation by corporations that are like you know yeah. paving over the rainforest so but again i only saw like little bits of the quote i again i don't really want to get into it because i don't know that much about it but diane fossey super problematic and super murdered um not to be too glib about it that's a whole other story yeah okay okay all right i'll look it up later (laughs) yeah i actually don't remember the details i've seen the movie gorillas in the mist but not for a long time i don't really remember the details but yeah she was murdered so but yeah there was this group of three women diane fossey barute galdicus and jane goodall they were later referred to as quote the trimates and also quote leaky's angels and I put in my notes, I roll in all caps. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, of, of course they were referred to that way, but whatever. Of course. Of course. <laughs> but here's what Jane says. She says, I was really lucky because Louis Leakey believed that women would make better observers in the field than men. He thought they would be more patient. Jane also said in another quote, she said that she thought women may have evolved into better observers because of their role in child marriage. So here's Hmm. what she said. She said, to do that, you have to be patient. You have to be able to understand the wants and the needs of a little creature before it can talk. And also, you need to be very observant of relationships in the family group of the tribe because you want to keep your child away from a family member who's in a bad mood or something like that. So all of those attributes of this theory is true would tend to make women better. I mean, maybe it's, it's again, it's like, you know, child rearing has made women more evolved seems like a little archaic, but you know. But, yeah, but well, we're talking, what, 1950s here? Yeah, I mean, she's very much like a British lady of a certain age. <laughs> so Right. Um, right and yeah, right. and she's, you know, this is all happening in the early, or the late 50s. Now, one thing that's interesting is that, you know, when Jane and the, quote, trimates uh, uh-huh. <laughs> first were sent into the field, <laughs> and I believe mm-hmm. Jane Goodall was the first of them. I'm not 100% sure about that, but I believe I read that she was the first. Okay. Um, women were really not accepted into these fields at all yeah and she really credited lewis leakey and his wife of being like pushing like no let's get women involved and today primatology is now in an area of science with one of the highest proportions of female to male scientists really? it's actually like the split is about even which is like you don't find that anywhere else in the sciences. no so, so that's interesting she also thought the fact that she was a woman may have somewhat protected her because she's in these areas of africa obviously where there's a lot of political instability strife mm. you know warfare between nations and between different uh, uh cultures and whatnot she thought the fact that she was a woman may have protected her she said quote white males were still perceived as something of a threat whereas i as a mere woman was not so after she got back to Africa, Louis Leakey, I think he sent her out into the wild for a little while. She went into the Gombe Stream National Park, G-O-M-B-E. Again, don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. And she actually went in with her mother because the chief warden of the park, a guy named David Ansay, was worried about Jane staying safe. So he was like, I'll only let you in if your mom goes with you, which is weird. 
Jane does often credit her mother with being very supportive of her career. So after this first venture into this Gombe National Park, in 1962, uh, Louis Leakey arranged more funding for Jane to go back to England and attend the University of Cambridge to like formalize her scientific education. And so she ended up earning a PhD in ethology, which is the study of animal behavior. She was only the eighth person at Cambridge to be granted a PhD without first obtaining a bachelor's. So she like went right into the PhD program, which is interesting. That sounds awful. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it does particularly like you're, you're literally living with chimpanzees for a year and then they're like, yeah, Cambridge PhD program, write a dissertation. It seems like a lot. Like, yeah, that's a pretty hard 180, but she did it. Yeah. I'd um, also just be like, I've been living with chimps. Like I don't need your, PhD. <laughs> well, it's interesting because her thesis in 1966, it was titled The Behavior of Free Living Chimpanzees, and it was based on her five years of studying chimps in the Gombe. Mm -hmm. um, so she started in the Gombe by studying a chimpanzee. I've seen them referred to as communities, troops, broods, etc. I'm not sure what the like official word for like a group of chimpanzees is. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to say, uh, usually I'm going to say troop, I think. Okay. But she was studying one of these chimp troops that was called the Casacala group. Okay. Um, and while she was doing this, she started breaking some scientific conventions, which she has to this day been criticized for. One big one is that she started giving the chimps names. Mm -hmm. So scientists, you're supposed to keep like a good clinical distance. You're not supposed to get emotionally involved. You're not yeah. supposed to anthropomorphize whatever it is you're observing. And so the, the convention was you assign numbers uh, mm -hmm. to the different chimps just to keep okay. them. They're specimens. They're not, they're not pets. They're not your friends. Yeah. Yeah. Or she started giving them names like Fifi and David Graybeard and things like that. <laughs> Okay. Um, but I think it's an interesting double-edged sword because I think in one level, by doing that, she kind of opened up her mind to really, and it was one of the things Louis Leakey really wanted her to study was like, what is the relationship between humans and chimps? Mm -hmm. Like, how close are we mm -hmm. uh, to these weird animals? And she started observing things like that individual chimpanzees have their own unique personality. She says, it isn't only human beings who have personality who are capable of rational thought and emotions like joy and sorrow. She observed this in chimpanzees. Now, I mean, I feel like, is that like unique to chimpanzees though? Because I feel like different dogs have different personalities. They I seem think, to feel joy and sorrow. So. Yeah. I think if you spend any amount of time with any living being you're going to be like that it has what we call a personality it has the things right. that make it a unique individual i mean maybe not a fish <clears throat> or something but like but i feel like i feel like have i heard of that kind of stuff i mean maybe yeah i don't know i don't know and i mean like i had a the guy i did in high school his parents got this like massive i mean it was massive this massive saltwater tank mm. and after a while there were I don't know if it was as like clear, like clearly distinct, but I feel like there, like it was like, like that fish is aggressive. Mm -hmm. Like that fish is going to attack every fish that gets put into the, into the tank. This fish just like minds his own business. And it wasn't like species specific. It's like individual fish of the same species acting differently. That's interesting. I don't know. I couldn't tell you because it's not like they had, you know, a, a whole school of like clownfish <laughs> right. or anything in right. there. Right. I don't know. Yeah. So yeah. Well, anyway, she's she's seeing in the chimp behavior. She's seeing things like what she, she was calling human-like behaviors, like hugs, kisses, pats on the back, tickling, 
you know, mm-hmm. things like that. She believed that these gestures showed that chimps have, quote, the close supportive affectionate bonds that develop between family members and other individuals within a community, which can persist throughout a lifespan of more than 50 years. Sounds lovely, right? These, these just amazing i'm just already i'm already angel chimps (laughs) (laughs) um yeah let's put a pin in that she was also the first to observe that chimps use tools and she was the first to disprove the idea that chimps were vegetarians so like for instance she saw them what they would do is they would take sticks strip them of leaves and bark and stuff Mm -hmm. stick them into a termite mound kind of swirl them around pull them out the stick is covered in termites then they would lick the termites off of the stick which is like gross but also like kind of smart you know no like, it's very smart there was I mean, my dog's not figuring that out no that. there was there was a termite issue here which is why i'm doing that <laughs> yeah. i'm happy that the chimps are eating that i wish we had some chimps to eat the termites here yeah or your face but anyway uh, again yes. put a pin in it put a pin in okay. it okay all right <laughs> okay so she was noticing these bonds of affection these like the hugs the kisses the pats on the back she also started noticing that they were not just these peaceful and affectionate creatures, but they could be very aggressive and very violent. One of the ways she disproved that they were vegetarians is she watched them systematically hunting and eating smaller primates like colobus monkeys. Mm. So we're, we're starting to get into the animals, murdering animals portion. So again, okay. just warning. So they would isolate a colobus monkey high in a tree. There would be like a band of them. They would basically chase the colobus monkey in the tree and then work together to block any possible escape. So the monkey is just stuck. And then one of the chimps would finally climb up there, kill the monkey, bring it down, and then would share it with his friends, like quote unquote friends, whatever. Right. So it's like a couple interesting things. One is like violent hunting, predatory behavior, but also Mm. cooperative behavior. Right. She also observed the dominant females of different troops deliberately murdering the infants of other females in the troop to maintain their position in the hierarchy. This wow. goes so far sometimes as them actually eating the, the babies. Okay. And so this is what Jane had to say. She says, during the first 10 years of study, I had believed that the Gombe chimpanzees were, for the most part, rather nicer than human beings. Then suddenly we found that chimpanzees could be brutal. That they, like us, had a darker side to their nature. So, the Gombe Chimpanzee War. Okay. Hey, question real fast. Are chimpanzees matriarchal or patriarchal? Patriarchal. Okay. And I'm actually going to get to that because I'm going to mention a little bit about uh, our, our other monkey cousins towards the end. But yes, they're very much built around a dominant male structure. Okay. 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 So the Gombe Chimpanzee War. In her 1990 memoir, it's titled Through a Window, My 30 Years with the Chimpanzees of Gombe, she observed or she documents a war that she saw break out between two rival groups of chimpanzees. Mm. It took place in the lower region of the Kakombe Valley, which is part of the Gombe Stream National Park. It's an area that consists of steep slopes of open woodlands uh, that rise up like above the stream valleys. In the area, there were three main groups of chimps that roamed the hills in these, like, territorial parties. They're kind of in any size from, like, two to, like, 40 of them in any one group. Jesus. So these were the Kasakela troop in the north and then the Kakambe troop and Makinke troops to the south. Okay. Now, she had already witnessed a certain degree of aggression and territorialism between the different troops, uh, particularly in the protection of the feeding grounds, but mm. nothing that she saw prepared her for what happened to the Casacella troop in 1974. Uh, okay. All right. So again, animal murder coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was basically a split that happened in the Casacella group. A certain number of the Casacella chimps seceded 
and went off and tried to form their own troop that they, that Goodall and the other scientists started calling the Kahama troop. Okay. Um, so the members of this troop, these are the names that Jane Goodall had given them. So the members of this new troop were a brother duo named Hugh and Charlie, and then the males, Gody, Day, Goliath, and Sniff. And I think, uh, the, I didn't see the names listed anywhere, but I think there were like three to five females that also joined them. Okay. The males in the remaining Casakella troop were Figan, Satan, Sherry, <laughs> yes, Everett, Rodolph, Jomeo, and Humphrey. So the, quote, war kicked off on January 7th, 1974, when Godi of the new Kahama troop was ambushed by six of the Casacala males, Humphrey, Figan, Jomeo, Sherry, Everett, and Rodolph. Okay. Godi was just hanging out by himself. He was eating a tree. And then the six Casacella chimps just descended on him. Mm. Said they grabbed him by the leg, threw him to the ground. And then the other chimps fell on him in a, quote, state of enraged frenzy and beat and bit him for over 10 minutes. So Jane says in her memoir, she says, Godi remained motionless for a few moments, lying as his assailants had left him. He was badly wounded with great gashes on his face, one leg, and the right side of his chest. And he must have been badly bruised by the tremendous pummeling to which he had been subjected. Undoubtedly, he died of his injuries, for he was never seen again by the field staff. So after Godi was killed, one thing they noticed is that the victorious Casacella chimps celebrated. They started throwing rocks and and branches around. They were like dragging the branches and they were hooting and screaming and like beating their chest and stuff. Okay. After Godi died, Day was the next to be targeted. Um, Then after he was taken out, the Casacella chimps murdered Hugh and then Goliath, who was elderly. He was like the old man. And this is kind of sad. Goliath had actually kind of been stayed on friendly terms with this troop. Mm. And it sounds like, like they came upon him and he sort of tried to be like, hey guys, it's me. And they just killed him. Ugh. Um. So after his death, the Casacala chimps then went after Charlie. Another Kahama chimp, Willy Wally, disappeared and was never found. So this left Sniff as the last surviving Kahama male. Question. Yeah. yeah. So like Jane's like out in her tent and like watching this or like, like how, how close are they? That I'm not sure. I saw a different thing. Like I was trying to find because I had the exact same question. And like sometimes you like I was watching some YouTube videos of her. I think it was like excerpts from this documentary. Mm-hmm. And some of it, she's like up fucking close to them. Yeah. <laughs> but like then if- sometimes they're watching, I think, through binoculars, like from a long. So I'm imagining this kind of shit was like more at a distance, but I don't know. I mean. I'd be and fucking terrified if I was up close to that. Well, particularly if you know what a chimp can do. Can do, like, yeah. Yeah. <sighs> okay. They can be fucking vicious. Yeah, I'm assuming that the scientists were not super close. But even if they were, I mean, they're scientists. Like, they need to study the behavior. So it's like the Star Trek Prime Directive. You can't interfere, you know? Nerd. Um, nerd. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's so funny because I'm not even a Star Trek fan, but whatever. I know. <laughs> So you say. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so Sniff ended up being the last surviving Kahama male. He survived for over a year. And it actually looked like he might even escape either into a new community or be taken back into the Kasakala troop mm-hmm. from which they had initially broken off. But eventually they just found him and killed him as well. Mm. Um, of the, the Kahama males, or sorry, of the Kahama females, one was killed. Two went missing, and then three were beaten and kidnapped back to the Casacala, quote, war band. 
Um, we're going to talk about that here in a second. So the Casa Cal, I mean, you know, they call it the, the great chimpanzee war, mm-hmm. but really it was kind of like a fucking eradication. Like the Casa yeah. Cala chimps just decimated this breakaway Kahama band. Right. Yeah. And then took over their territory, which didn't last because this territory butted up against another larger troop to the south called the Kalende. And after they had some skirmishes with the Kalende chips, eventually the Kasakala chips moved back up north. And I believe they're still there. I mean, it's obviously different chips, but I believe that band, like that family unit, is still there and being observed today. Okay, so here's some of her observations about how the war progressed and uh, how it may, and I want to talk about how these things like might kind of uh, relate to human conflict. Mm-hmm. So as the, quote, war progressed... Uh, she began to see patterns in what she called the chimps, what she was calling border patrols. Um, so, or you could also call them war bands. It was the group, these groups usually of males who would go around basically looking for other chimps. Mm-hmm. Um, normally chimps are very boisterous, very rambunctious. They're making noise and screeching and you know, whatnot all the time. But once they would form these border patrols, they would become uncharacteristically quiet and just start stalking through the brush, which is, that's fucking creepy yeah yeah they would often stop to listen and it was like clear they were listening to see if they heard other (laughs) chips what the fuck (laughs) yeah now if they did find an isolated chimp they would stalk and then ambush their victim brutalizing them and inflicting lethal wounds usually these attacks would last no more than 10 minutes it was usually take you know the way this um goatee was killed where they just kind of fell on him and then beat him and bit him to death mm-hmm. it's basically that's basically how it went mm-hmm. and then they would beat and then they would celebrate like this was like a a common occurrence mm-hmm. interestingly they would only ever target single victims Okay. So it was never like a band of chimps would never go up against another band of chimps. Mm-hmm. It was if they would find one isolated, they would overwhelm and like destroy them. Okay. So one thing that Goodall noticed is that the fights between members of separate communities were always far more vicious than fights between members of the same community because conflicts would break out within a band. Yeah. But there were usually like dominance things and, you know, a chimp might get hurt, but they're almost never lethal. These attacks on outsider chimps were always lethal, like mm. without exception. Mm-hmm. Um, and then while most of the attacks were perpetrated on male chimps, there would be occasional attacks on females as well. They were generally less aggressive, especially when the female was an estrus. And again, we're coming back to that. Okay. This wasn't like a one-off thing. It wasn't like, like the Gombe chimpanzee war was the first time this had ever been witnessed. But in the decades since, other researchers, and I think even Jane Goodall saw it again, this was just happening with chimp bands all over the place. Like, this is just how they deal with other chimps. Uh Um, So here's from that Big Think article. It says, the consistency with which these border patrol raids are carried out across different communities indicates they are an integrated form of chimp behavior rather than freak accidents shaped by the heat of battle. At the same time, scientists have struggled to find an explanation for their excessively violent nature. A couple researchers, a guy named Joseph Manson and another guy named Richard Rangham, they went through all the academic literature about the Gombe War, mm-hmm. and they couldn't find like any short-term benefits of the attacks. So it was just like, why are they doing this? But then if you look at it, it would 
benefit the troops in the long term because they'd essentially be insured of eradicating rival communities that would be competing for natural and quote reproductive resources. So unsurprisingly, right. It's all it's all about the lady chimps. All about the it's all lady about chimps. And it's all about who has rights to their womb. Wow. So um I was not expecting this story to be relevant but <laughs> by today's news, but apparently it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So even 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 How? chimp even chimp men think they own the wombs of uh lady chimps. Okay. Garbage, just garbage behavior across the board. Right. So basically, like one thing these researchers realized is that the Casa band, before it had split into these two separate troops, had a roughly equal number of males and females. This isn't ideal in a chimp community because chimp communities appear to be the most stable when there are more females than males. Really? Okay. More males equals more competition between mm-hmm. males for females. Of course. Okay. So they think this could be the spark that led to the Gombe War because they were killing the males and kidnapping the females back into their troop. It doesn't really explain the excessive cruelty, though, and the celebrations. So researchers now believe that the inherent power imbalance, a large band isolated chimp, could be the cause of the cruelty. It's like this escalation that happens. Mm-hmm. Basically, when you're in a large band, you can easily overpower your victim and inflict as much damage as you want. There are basically no repercussions because they can't fight right. back. Right. Um, this, I, I I believe I've talked about it on the podcast. <laughs> I know I've talked about it with you, but it, this takes me back to Boston and the Boston boot parties. Mm-hmm. Um, just mm-hmm. as a reminder, when I was in Boston, I used to <laughs> observe a number of bar fights generally between locals and college dudes Mm -hmm. and what would happen is that one of the college dudes would be baited into going outside to fight and then a bunch of townies would descend on them and kick the shit out of them yeah and i i had after i was able to kind of blend into boston a little bit and kind of pretend to be a boss boston person i would have conversations with these guys like you know i'd go out for smoke breaks and stuff at the bars these guys would think i was a local and they'd start telling stories and like i started hearing terms like giant killer Uh, the uh bigger the dude you take down the bigger points you get they would also i heard the phrase boston boot party which is like you beat a college guy down and kick the shit out of him with your boots. And when I'm reading about these chimps, <laughs> finding an isolated chimp and then just murdering the shit out of him, it definitely took me back to that. Yeah, um, for sure. You actually see this principle used in modern human warfare. Mm. It's the doctrine of, quote, overwhelming force. Mm. Or the Nazi doctrine of Blitzkrieg, which is the same thing. Right, right. So this kind of excessive force, it will allow the aggressors to quickly defeat their enemies. Otherwise, you could have a conflict that kind of ends in a war of attrition, you know, which like right. World War One, which you don't want. You right. want to go in, decimate them and get out. So that's why these attacks would be like no more than 10 minutes. And then they'd fuck off somewhere else because they didn't want like murdered chimps friends coming and fighting. Right. They didn't want to get. Mm-hmm. So uh, from the Big Think article, it says, at the same time, there's something distinctly human about hurting a weaker opponent, not because you stand to gain something from it, but simply because you can. Mm -hmm. And this is something after reading all this, I was thinking about like what, again, like, okay, I understand overwhelming force. 
I understand competition for reproductive resources, as gross as that sounds. We all know that, like, we've seen, you know, the nature footage of, like, male elks bashing each other or whatever. You know, this is not new. But the cruelty and the joy that these Mm. chimps seem to take in what they were doing Mm -hmm. seems unique. And I was like, what's the missing X factor? I think this is this is just me talking. Okay. Um, I think it's intelligence. I think, I think like, think about like your dog, your dog may be able to feel something for you, but your dog doesn't really have a conception of you as like a different entity, you know, like the dog just knows like what it feels for you. It knows you mean protection. It knows you mean affection or whatever, mm-hmm. but it's, but your dog's not sitting there thinking like, what does Amelia want? Like Donia's not sitting there being like, what does Amelia want today? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and I, I think about like the Instagram videos of like, you know, big, enormous dogs, like sitting on their owner's heads and stuff. The, mm-hmm. There's no point at which where the dog is like, hey, maybe he doesn't want a hundred pound dog sitting on his head. You know, right. It just all the dog knows is like, I want to be close to this thing that makes me feel safe. Right. right? So dogs, you know, we use the phrase like mean dog, but really dogs aren't mean. Like even a, a dangerous dog is not mean because mean implies intent. You have to have intelligence to be able to recognize here's another creature that has its own separate wants and desires from me. And wouldn't it be fun if I just took that away from her? Wouldn't that be fun if I just fucked that, that other chimp up, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you have to have enough intelligence to be able to make that decision to enjoy what you did. Because when animals kill each other, even like when animals are hunting each other, like a lion hunting uh, whatever, the caribou, the lion's not enjoying it. The lion just knows it's hungry, right? Yes, I think caribou are like in Alaska, so I well, don't you, think it's a caribou. An antelope, not. maybe. Maybe an antelope. Although now it's I'm like just... when a lion hunts a moose, or I mean, I'm sure someone has turned a lion loose in Alaska at some point. So, I mean, Alaska's got its own set of predators, right? Yeah. To so, like when so when a that. grizzly bear hunts a caribou. Thank you. Um. <laughs> Like the grizzly bear is not like, I fucked that caribou up. You know, it's just Mm -hmm. like, I was hungry. That thing was there. It was tasty. I ate it. Like when, uh, what's his name? A grizzly man got, he and his girlfriend got eaten by the grizzly bear up there. It's not like the grizzly bear was just like cackling because he fucked up this human. It was just like, this thing is in my territory. I'm hungry and starving. Just do what I got to do, you know? Yeah. So these chimps like enjoying and celebrating that, that can only be a product of intelligence. Mm -hmm. And that's like a not happy thought about what intelligence (laughs) gives us. Right. Yeah. Like even think about like, you know, everyone thinks dolphins are so cute, but actually dolphins are kind of assholes for like similar reasons. So, yeah. So yeah. These, uh, but let's put a pin in that because there's another intelligent ape that I want to talk about here in a second. Okay. But let's go back to Jane Goodall. She was shocked. She was shocked by what she saw. She had kind of, I think, I get the impression she kind of anthropomorphized these chimps a little too much. Mm. Like, like she, she even said, she's like, I thought they were rather nicer than humans. And then she was watching this and was like, oh, no, 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 they're not. Yeah. They're not nice. (laughs) And so she said, here's her quote. She says, for several years, I struggled to come to terms with this new knowledge. Often when I woke in the night, horrific pictures sprang unbidden to my mind. Satan, one of the apes cupping his hand below Sniff's chin to drink the blood that welled from a great wound on his face. Old Rodoff, usually so benign, standing upright to hurl a four-pound rock at Goaty's prostrate body. Jomeo tearing a strip of skin from Day's thigh. 
Fagin charging and hitting again and again the stricken, quivering body of Goliath, one of his childhood heroes. Um, so that's the story of the Gombe Chimpanzee War, but I don't want to leave you just on that. Okay. Because, and, and again, I don't want to spoil my, I mean, it's in the first scene of the movie, but like, nope, the movie Nope deals with like some awful shit that a chimp does. We all know the story of Travis the chimp from about, I think it was 2009. <gasps> yeah. Chimps are fucking vicious. Like chimps are not pets. They're fucking no. mean. A 70 pound female chimpanzee can rip the arms off a full grown human man with mm-hmm. like little effort. Right. Yeah. So it's, think about it's, that. Uh, yeah. D- basically don't get a chimp and like dress it in a cute little outfit and put it on a tricycle. Cause like that chimp will eat your face eventually. Like just don't do it. Like the, they're wild like animals. The, yeah. They need to be treated <laughs> with respect. <laughs> yes. You know? Mm-hmm. However, there is another close cousin to the chimpanzee that I think we should mention when we're thinking okay. about human behavior. There's, of course, the bonobo, mm-hmm. otherwise known as the pygmy chimp, back when they thought they were a subspecies of chimp. They've since determined that they are actually a separate species. The, they think they diverged evolutionarily from chimps. I, I forgot to write down when, but basically mm-hmm. there's a big river that like separates bonobo territory from chimp territory and neither bonobos or chimps can swim. So they just separately evolved on each side of this river. Oh, interesting. Whereas chimps are patriarchal, bonobos are matriarchal. Where okay. chimps are violent, bonobos, I mean, <laughs> the joke about bonobos is that they just like fuck their feelings because like- Right, they're, they're a highly sexual- they're Highly species. sexual, but it's conflict resolution. Um, <laughs> like they, Same. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I just leave that out there. <laughs> oh my god, that's the stupidest thing I've said on this podcast. Uh, yeah, no, bonobos like they and you know they they've witnessed all sorts of homosexual behavior with bonobos, mm-hmm. totally accepted within the tribes. Male bonobos are <laughs> devoted to their mothers throughout their entire life. I think it's not that bonobos are never violent towards each other, but it's pretty rare it's definitely Mm -hmm. not like chimps and yeah they've developed like affection and conflict resolution and sharing altruism all these things Mm -hmm. that like chimps haven't really doesn't seem to have developed it's a common misconception that humans evolved from chimps okay it's actually not true humans bonobos and chimps all share a common ancestor and we all devolve or evolved away from each other at some point so it wasn't like chimps came first and then humans it was like Mm -hmm. we're all kind of evolving at the same time humans have traits of both chimps and bonobos interesting because think about obviously i talked about the boston boot party think about all the terrible wars think about what putin is doing over in the uk right now right i mean if that's not some chimpanzee behavior i don't know what is right but think about walking down the street and you see an unhomed person asking for money or for food and you feel bad and you're like i've got a couple bucks you know yeah that kind of altruism that's bonobo behavior um so the way i you know we all we have that cliche of the devil and the angel on your shoulder Mm mm-hmm I think it's actually what it really is, is we have a chimp on one shoulder and a bonobo <laughs> on the other. <laughs> yeah. And like, choose choose your bonobo nature. Like, be like the bonobos. Yeah. And that is <sighs> the story of the Gombe Chimpanzee War of 1974. Ooh. Wow. Wow. 
And how, how long did the whole thing last? Four years until 1978. Wow. Yeah. That is such an insane story. And it is crazy. It's like this, it was the first time it had ever been observed, but in the years since it's like, oh yeah, no, chimps are doing this shit to each other all the time. Like all this wasn't an, an, wasn't an anomaly. This is like, this is what, what they do. do. Yeah. <sighs> Creepy. All right. Well, that's terrifying. Um, should we move on to mine or do you need a, yes, please. Because uh, I think we all need to pick me up. (laughs) Okay. Fantastic. Okay. So today I am going to tell you a story of wealth, power, cutthroat competition and industrial espionage that would forever change the world today. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the chocolate wars. Yes. Sources for this are Wikipedia, uh, a TV show, a t- let me try that again, a TV show, <laughs> TV show called The Food That Built America, which is on Hulu. Uh, it's a history channel show, but it's on Hulu. Uh, an article yes, I've, from- I've, I've not watched it, but I've seen it on the Hulus. I've been mm-hmm. wanting to check that out. Yes. Uh, I'm going to talk about it a little bit more at the end, but um, cool. an article from Mia.com. <laughs> An article from mashed.com, several episodes of Business Wars podcast and Vanity Fair. Okay, so I'm going to give you a very, very brief history of chocolate. Um, Chocolate is a food made from roasted and ground cacao seeds. It has been consumed in some form since at least the Olmec civilization, which is the earliest known Mesoamerican civilization. Right. Apparently chocolate is actually a hot topic of debate among archaeologists and researchers because no one is actually sure where it originated. It was believed to have originated with the Olmecs in what is modern day Mexico. Mexico and were they they were like probably around 1900 to 900 BC mm-hmm. but there has now been a study published that suggests that cacao actually was domesticated about 1500 years earlier than previously thought and in South America instead of Central America mm. in South America the upper reaches of the Amazon of the Amazon basin extending up into the foothills of the Andes in southeastern Ecuador Okay. It is now believed that people were harvesting and consuming a cacao, which appears to be a close relative of the type of cacao later used in Mexico. Like I said, 1500 years earlier than previously thought. Um, Another interesting fact, the Pueblo people who inhabit the U.S. Southwest, uh, Mm -hmm. as Scotty and I know, we are very familiar with Pueblo people in, in New Mexico. They imported cacao from Mesoamerican cultures in Southern Mexico between 900 and 1400 AD. Archaeologists who worked in New Mexico's own Chaco Canyon mm. found remnants of cacao in thousand-year-old vase fragments once used by the Anasazi people. Mm, nice. I've never been to Chaco Canyon. Neither have I. We should go when I get we, back. Yeah, let's do it when you get back because it's ridiculous. We're both native New Mexicans in our 40s. I've never been. Yes, We've never ridiculous. Been. It's ridiculous. not even that far from us anyway. No, we absolutely need to go. So indigenous people in the Americas were using cacao to make, uh, they were using it to make like medicinal drinks and drinks that were used in rituals. Um, It was bitter, frothy, I believe cold. It doesn't sound very good. But by 1400, the Aztec empire had taken over a big chunk of Mesoamerica and they used cacao beans as a form of currency. Oh, okay. Uh, So like it's it's a big part of these, these- cultures it was also like believed to be an aphrodisiac but 
that's not true. Um, <laughs> so of course the, the bummer because I eat a lot of chocolate. <laughs> Yeah. Um, Okay. So of course the conquistadors were introduced to cacao as they like rampaged through Latin America, but Mm -hmm. chocolate didn't make its way back to Europe until after the Spanish defeated the Aztecs. Okay. From what I can tell, it was the Spanish that decided to add a little bit of sugar or honey to cacao, which Mm. of course greatly increased its popularity. Sure. Okay. So now we're going to move up to, so that's like, that's kind of the history of how like what it was doing in the early days and how it's how it made its way over to Europe. Right. In 1729, the first mechanical cacao grinder was invented in Bristol, UK. Mm. In 1815, a Dutch chemist added alkaline salts to chocolate which reduced its bitterness. Okay. And in 1828, that same chemist created a press to remove the natural fat from chocolate and that fat is what we know as cocoa butter. Oh, um, okay. this made chocolate cheaper to produce and more consistent in quality. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is where we get Dutch cocoa from. Ah, if you've okay. ever wondered, if you've ever seen a recipe that calls for Dutch cocoa and you're like, what the fuck is this called? It's because of this process. Okay. In 1847, Joseph Fry adds the melted cocoa butter to make, like he adds the melted cocoa butter back to make chocolate more moldable. Mm. And in 1875, a Swiss chocolatier named Daniel Peter would revolutionize chocolate making with the addition of powdered milk. And this powdered milk was a creation invented by Peter's friend and neighbor, Henry Nestle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nestle's powdered milk consisted of milk combined with grain and sugar to produce a substitute for breast milk. Nestle was actually Mm. trying to make baby formula. Okay. Chocolate, as we know it today, is really the work of the Swiss. Peter was Swiss. Nestle was German Swiss. And Rudolf Lindt, mm-hmm. which you know from Lindt Truffles, also Swiss. He also invented the conching machine, which is a machine that evenly distributes cocoa butter within chocolate and polishes the particles. Okay. Um, before the Swiss got in the game, eating chocolate was coarse and gritty. Mm, So it wasn't like super pleasant. Like, I think it was sweet, but it didn't have a good like mouth feel to it. It's like eating Mm. sweet dirt, probably. (laughs) I, this makes me think back to the episode of Friends where Monica gets the job from with that (laughs) company trying to make recipes for the thing called Mocklet. And she's like, "Mm, (laughs) it's fizzing in my mouth. Um, Makes me think of that. That's classic. Classic friends. By 1868, a little British company called Cadbury had also gotten in on the chocolate Mm, making game. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also another company called Roundtree that's that's doing good chocolate business in the UK okay. uh, around this time. Milk chocolate is a luxurious European export. It's sure. like yeah. it's in Europe. It's not really anywhere else. Nobody knows, like nobody can get their hands on it. Nobody really knows what to do with it if they did. Uh, Fun fact, the machine gun is older than milk chocolate. Huh. Mm -hmm. I mean, the machine gun has been around a surprisingly long time, but still that is surprising. Yeah. I think there's just things that you're like, I mean, milk chocolate is, it's it's chocolate. It's been been around forever, right? It really hasn't. Yeah. It's a whole process. 
Yeah. So now I'm going to talk to you a little bit about our first chocolate baron, man by the name of Milton Hershey. Mm. Uh, Hershey's born in 1857 and his family was of Swiss and German descent. His family was also members of Pennsylvania's Mennonite community. So ah, he grew up speaking okay. Pennsylvania Dutch. Milton only had a fourth grade education. If I'm remembering correctly, Milton's dad wasn't around a lot. And so I think Milton hit fourth grade and then had to like kind of become the money maker for his family. Mm -hmm. When Milton was 14, his mother and his aunt sent him to apprentice for a confectioner named Joseph Royer in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Over the next four years, Hershey learns everything he could about candy making before moving to Philadelphia to open his own candy business. He starts that business. I don't think it goes too well. He shuts it down. He moves to, he travels to Denver where he learned to make caramels with fresh milk. Um, Mm. That apparently was different than the way other caramel was being made. Okay. He goes to New Orleans and he learns some stuff there. He checks out Chicago and he finally moves to New York City in 1883. He opens a second business in New York, which only lasts three years (laughs) whoops poor guy that same year though uh hershey returns to lancaster and allegedly he asks his aunt and uncle for money to start what would become known as the lancaster caramel company um and he was like i just need like you know a couple hundred dollars i think i can really do this i've got this great recipe for these caramels made with fresh milk and um his aunt and uncle were like no. So <laughs> Hershey has to go and borrow money from the bank instead. And he borrows, okay. uh, he borrows a decent amount of money through the Lancaster caramel company. Hershey is selling his fresh milk caramels in bulk mm. and he's really not doing great. Like really? he's, he's getting by, but he's taken out all of this money to start this company and business isn't going as good as he had hoped it would that, that surprises me because I would have thought like once people discovered the wonder of fresh milk caramels, that <laughs> shit would have just like fallen off the shelves, blown into my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I will uh, say clearly. I will... I've, clearly, by the way, I've been on a diet for a while. <laughs> yeah, I will also say I haven't been on a diet, but like doing this story was. I went through like a bag of mini Twixes just writing this, <laughs> doing the research for this. Yeah. Um, so he's doing this business with Lancaster Caramel Company. It's it's doing okay, but not great. And one okay. day, some random British dude walks into Lancaster and is like, I, let me try one of these caramels. And he loves it so much that he's like, you know what? I would like to put in an order for $2,400 worth of these caramels and ship them to England. Oh. Uh-huh. And Hershey's like, what? <laughs> okay. And he does. And in the business wars podcast, they talk about this a little bit that he like ships them off. And he's like, what if this guy's like, like, maybe this is a con and like, right. what if like, what if I'm not like, what if I don't get the money? And then I've wasted all this product and I'm going to have to like go and you know, my life yeah. is going to be over and all this stuff. A few weeks go by, he gets a check in the mail for the total amount. And this money from this bulk order of caramels, he like, he's able to pay off all of his debts and nice. he has all of this money left over to buy like more ingredients and equipment. Okay. So by the early 1890s, Lancaster Caramel Company is doing pretty dang good. And in 1893, just a matter of time. In 1893, Hershey goes to Chicago to check out the World's Columbian Exposition, Mm. and he tries milk chocolate. (laughs) 
and a light bulb goes off in his head and he's like, Oh, okay. And he decides to sell off Lancaster Caramel Company for $1 million. In what year? 1893. So he's like Elon Musk, basically. (laughs) So he makes uh, somewhere between 31 and $32 million in today's money off of the sale. Pretty damn good. The sale of the Lancaster Caramel Company was actually reported on in the New York Times because it was such a huge sale. And he takes that money and he's like, you know what? I'm going to open up a chocolate company. (laughs) So before I get too far into that, I do want to talk a teensy bit about what is happening in the United States at this time. So we've got the industrial revolution, right? Has like changed everything. And pre-industrial revolution, people lived like out on their farms and they took care of all of their food. They Mm -hmm. grew their own wheat. They slaughtered their own animals. They milked their own cows, blah, blah, blah. But now with the industrial revolution, you have people living in cities who for the first time in the history of the U.S. need to be fed by someone else. Mm -hmm. Nearly a third of all Americans are living in cities that have no space in which to like make food. Yeah. And there's, it's one of the things they talk about in the food that built America. There is some shady, shady shit happening with food uh, <laughs> around oh, this time. Um, well, I mean, people like cannery row era. And stuff, yes. Yeah. And like people are speaking of people are adding copper to pickles to make them more green. <laughs> They're adding uh laundry bluing to milk to make it look white. Oof. Like, yeah, just it's um, there's no not refrigerators good. don't exist. Like, yeah, it's not good. clearly you, the EPA doesn't exist. Yeah, the, the EPA drug doesn't administration exist. doesn't exist. Also, you don't have your like now when you go to the market, if you go to the butcher, you can go give me that steak. Right. And you can pick your bag of flour off of the shelves. Then you would go to the clerk, the store clerk in the store and be like, I need a pound of this, a pound of that, half a pound. And you would just had to, you just had to take whatever the store clerk gave you. Right. So there's that. Mm -hmm. Um, By the early 1900s, the average U.S. worker is making $400 a year. By the year 1900, the U.S. economy was the most powerful in the world. And the reason that's important is because it built a permanent working class that was would leave work every day with disposable mm-hmm. income in their pockets. That's a little surprising. Just, I guess I always thought it was like after World War II that we became the dominant economy, but this is quite a bit earlier. Put a pin on that. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> a typical family at this time is spending 45% of their budget on food. Okay. Okay. So Hershey takes the money that he made from the sale of the Lancaster Caramel Company and he goes and he buys a bunch of farmland about 30 miles outside of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Um, He does this because on this chunk of land, he will have access to all of the fresh milk that is, that, um, Mm. is available from the local dairies. Okay. Smart. Yeah. Additionally, Milton Hershey wasn't like, I'm going to build this factory. He also wants to build a town to support the factory. Hershey had this really utopian vision where everyone would have plumbing and electricity and it would be like taken care of for them. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so by this company. So I'm waiting for like the bad news, but so far he sounds like maybe not the worst guy. <laughs> yeah. And like I'll just spoiler alert, like there is absolutely problematic stuff about Milton Hershey, mm-hmm. um, which is not dissimilar from the problematic stuff that you would find of anyone from sure. that era. But like relatively he, speaking. Yeah. And he does a whole he does a whole whole bunch of stuff. So starting in the 1880s, I'm going to go back a little bit in time. Starting in the 1880s, remote industrial operations that required hard labor, this is stuff like coal mines, lumber yards, that kind of stuff, were supported by company towns. And that's because factories were built on cheap land outside of city limits, but cars and urban transportation weren't really a thing. And so the workers needed to live within walking distance to their jobs. So They'd build, you know, they'd do the coal mine, they'd build the lumber yard or whatever. And then they'd essentially build a little town where everybody who worked in these places could also live. Right. Historically, they were dirty, um, Mm -hmm. poorly built and expensive, which sucks. Like it sucks that you have to pay a lot of money to live in this shithole town. Right. Well, you you work your hard ass job in the coal mine. Right. I was going to say, you always hear that about like mining towns out here, you know, Mm -hmm. how fucking brutal they were. And, you know, there are these big fucking company towns. Yeah. 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 So Hershey is like, I don't want to do that. So he's drawing up the plans for this factory and this town and everything. And he's like looking over the plans and he's like, they're fine, but this is all like really plain. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't look nice. And I'm sure the architects and stuff are like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like it's, <laughs> it's a company town. And he's like, I know, but I feel like if we give these people a really nice place to live yeah. while they're working for my company, they'll really enjoy working there. It means that they'll work harder, which means we'll make more money. Like it's a win-win situation. Yeah. And, and everybody's like, Oh, I mean, it almost makes me think of like what you hear about, like the Silicon Valley offices where it's just like, everyone's lounging around on bean bags and stuff. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And it is an interesting thing. Again, this is something that is interesting. When you go back, you look at somebody like Milton Hershey, you know, people like Ford and stuff again, who is, not an unproblematic human being at yeah. all. But I say as a Jew, I, I yes. co-signed that opinion. Yes. And at the same time, Hershey's sitting there being like, if I give my employees something that they like a home that they can be proud to walk into, they'll walk into work proud and they'll put that pride into the product that we make. Yeah. That's a pretty innovative Mm -hmm. concept. (laughs) Yeah. The reason I brought Ford up is there was an abandoned episode idea that was like the history of the weekend. Um, Mm. And in that I found that Henry Ford was one of the people who was like, we need to give people a break. And at this time, the workforce is men. Mm -hmm. And he's like, we need to give men a break. They need time to think and contemplate and rest because when we don't they're just going to turn to like abuse and alcohol it's not a philosophy i would have expected from henry ford from henry ford right but he was really like no we need to take care of our we need to take care of our men um and because then that way they'll be able to take care of their families right okay so hershey's like i want to do all this stuff i want to build this like utopia town and all of this stuff let me interject to say that he has not yet figured out a recipe for milk chocolate (laughs) put the cart before the horse a little way before (laughs) way before the horse and he's like you know breaking ground on all of this stuff and he's like what are you selling and he's like we'll get to that in a second um (laughs) i just imagine him being like shh I think he kind of wished. 
So Hershey spends $20,000, which is more than a half million dollars today on equipment to make milk chocolate. When he finally mm-hmm. gets, when he's finally like, okay, I have my town. Now I'll get to the chocolate. He spends over $20,000 on the equipment to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, again, milk chocolate is relatively unknown in the U S at the time, but it's very, very popular in Europe. Yeah. Hershey tries and fails for months okay. to crack a recipe for milk <laughs> chocolate. Yeah. Maybe should have figured that out first. Yes. Here is the thing about milk chocolate. Mm -hmm. The reason that Europeans are using powdered milk is because milk, fresh milk, has a lot of water in it. And chocolate has a lot of fat in it. Mm. So when you take fresh milk and try to mix it with chocolate, that water and that fat don't mix and the chocolate breaks. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Science. Science. It's also yeah. why the title of my favorite book is like water for chocolate, because it is like, mm. you know, to feel this way is like adding water to chocolate. Interesting. Yes. So he's bringing in all these chemists and all this stuff. And they're like, we could do this with powdered milk. And he's like, absolutely fucking not. I'm using local milk from the local dairies. End I mean, of conversation. Good intentions there. But yes, again, science. <laughs> but yeah, he was he was. Like, yeah, he was just like, I really like milk chocolate and I want to make it. And they were like, you can. And he was like, pish posh. Um, and he's bringing in, like I said, chemist after chemist. And they're like, you, like you, it can't be done. And he's like, okay, well then get out of here. <laughs> During all of this, like I said, he's continuing to build his factory and the town. He's hiring employees. Mm-hmm. He's got Still no product. <laughs> no product. Yes. He finally brings in a candy maker named John Schmalbach. Schmalbach has no formal chemistry degree, but he's the one who finally figures out how to make milk chocolate with fresh milk. And Mm. what he basically does is he condenses the milk. Ah. The resulting chocolate has a slightly sour taste to it because in the process of condensing the milk, it sours. Yeah. And so he makes the batch and Schmalbach is like, we got it. It's the right texture and everything, but it has this little sour taste to it. Give me a little bit and I'll figure out how to get rid of it. And Hershey's mm-hmm. like, you know what? Don't get rid of it. We're mm. done. Did you like, have you written down the recipe? This is fantastic. This is our chocolate. We're moving forward. Okay. Um, this is why I think American chocolate ends up having a slightly different taste to it than European chocolate. It, okay. Yeah. I was going to say it really does. Yes. It really and like if, yeah, not as good. Yeah. <laughs> Just put that up there. Look, Sorry, Hershey, Hershey had a whole town, but yeah. he, he was like, we need to get going right. on this. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. But Americans become accustomed to the taste. Yeah. You know, and they're like, okay, cool. That's so, interesting. I'm going to have to like try to eat, I don't know, like a Snickers and then like a Cadbury cream egg and see if, because I've never thought I've, you know, like American chocolate, I definitely have thought has a different taste, mm-hmm. but I've never thought of, of it as sour. So I want to compare now with that in mind. Okay. We're going to come, we're going to come back to that in a sec. (laughs) We're going to come back to that in several seconds. Um, Okay. So Hershey releases a plain milk chocolate bar, the Hershey bar wrapped Mm -hmm. in brown paper. And there we go. Hershey bar is born. Milton also really, really wants to make sure that everyone has access to this like obscure European luxury of milk chocolate. So he sells his bar for a nickel. You can get a Hershey Mm -hmm. bar for a nickel in the process of doing this because he's like, 
He's making milk chocolate accessible to everyone. Milton Hershey becomes a tycoon with a wealth that equals that of like Carnegie, Rockefeller, Morgan. (laughs) Now he's getting into that Elon Musk money. Now he's really getting into that Elon Musk, which is so funny though, because whenever you think about, when you think about like tycoons, you don't think about Milton Hershey, but he had that kind of money and everything is going great for him. (laughs) (laughs) until Uh July 28th, 1914, when the conflict in Europe explodes into World War I. The U.S. joins the conflict in 1917 and rations go into place. So you've got meatless Mondays, Mm, meatless Wednesdays, et cetera, and sugar gets rationed. Yeah, Hershey's like, "Mm, I really need sugar to make my chocolate. So (laughs) he goes and he opens up a sugar refinery in Cuba, Mm. complete with its own mill town and its own railroad mm-hmm. and so he's like cool just repeating I'm, it yeah cuban sugar now. here we go and this it lets hershey's profits continue to skyrocket during the war yeah world war one also saw massive food shortages throughout europe and this leads to the u.s food industry to expand internationally so prior to world war one mm. u.s food exports totaled 190 million dollars a year after the war 510 million oh wow yeah so again the u.s emerges as an economic powerhouse sure and hershey has no real competition Mm -hmm. yet Uh uh-oh Okay, so now I'm going to fast forward you a few years. I'm going to plop you down in Chicago, 1923. A 19-year-old man is working a summer job of hanging cigarette ads when he gets arrested for illegally posting these ads. (laughs) They're like, you can't post that. There's a sign that says post no bills. And he's like, whatever, my bad. I don't know. I'm Canadian. (laughs) Um, He is Canadian. Uh, He doesn't know anyone in the area, but he makes a quick phone call to his estranged father, Frank, who is living in Minneapolis at the time. Frank comes, he bails out his son Forrest and the two head to a diner to grab a post jail milkshake. Mm. During this milkshake, they're having a conversation and Frank tells Forrest that he's a modest candy maker in Minneapolis. He's doing pretty okay with himself uh, or for himself with his company, which is called Morrow Bar. Forrest Mm. asks, you know, Frank, why don't you sell your candy nationally? And Frank is like, Candy tastes are regional. So, you know, mm. and, and I've got a pretty good thing going on here. Forrest, Not super ambitious, sounds like. Yeah. And true. Like, it's very true. Like, yeah. what, what people are like crazy for in Minneapolis is not going to be what people are crazy for in Chicago. Right. And Forrest is like, well, you should make a candy bar that tastes like this malted milkshake. Mm. And Frank is like, mm. okay. <laughs> I will also pause here to say that candy bars at this time are not a thing. You've got chocolate bars with Hershey and then you've got candy. Right. But a candy bar is like not really a thing. But Frank gets to thinking, you know, he's contemplating this conversation he's had with his son and he's like, hmm, I wonder if we could make a candy bar that tastes like a milkshake. So he takes eggs, milk and sugar, whips them all together adds malt flavoring and he doesn't invent nougat, but what he makes is nougat mm, and okay. nougat is super fucking cheap to make because all that air that gets whipped into it is free. Right. So he takes that nougat, he tops it with caramel. He covers the whole thing in chocolate. And that is when Frank Mars invents the Milky Way. Mm. So Milky Way was first. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Milky Way is actually named after the milkshake that inspired the bar and not the galaxy. Oh, okay. Frank and Forrest 
Mars sell $800,000 worth of Milky Way bars in 1924. Mm. It's $12 million today. Yeah. So demand is growing for these candy bars and the Mars company, which is what it is now known as, needs a steady supply of chocolate to make this happen. And there's only one place where he can get that much chocolate. Hershey. Yeah. So Hershey at the time is bringing in an insane amount of money by providing chocolate to other food companies. Another fun fact, the chocolate that's used in Oreo cookies originally Mm. came from Hershey. Okay. Frank Mars goes to Hershey, Pennsylvania to meet with Hershey's president, who at this time is a man named William Murray. Milton Hershey is still with the company, but he's basically C like COO and William Murray is CEO. Okay. So Murray's like running the business, right? Frank Mars proposed setting up a modest line of credit with Hershey to produce his extremely popular Milky Way bars. Mars at this time is a small company in Minneapolis, not at all a threat to Hershey's, but Murray's, Murray's like, "Mm, he sees the the potential threat on the, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So Murray goes to Hershey. He's like this little company in Minneapolis wants to do this. I think that we should deny them the line of credit. Hershey, (laughs) man that he is, goes, nah, they're tiny. Give them the line of credit with an exclusive deal, meaning that Hershey's will be their only chocolate supplier and Hershey gets a cut of every Milky Way sold. Yeah, sounds fair. Mm -hmm. So Murray's like... Okay. And he goes back to Frank and he's like, you've got your line of credit. Problem is, is that Mars is growing to be a national brand Mm -hmm. in stores. The Milky Way looks huge compared to the Hershey bar. Mm -hmm. Hershey bar is a flat piece of chocolate. The Mars is like tall and fat Mm -hmm. and they both cost a nickel. So Mm. people are like, well, I could get this like flat chocolate bar, or I could get this big fat candy bar. That's got all of this other stuff in it. Yeah. I'm going to take the milk. (laughs) Most of which is air, but still, (laughs) but still, (laughs) yes. So Milky ways are flying off of the shelves. Yeah. Mars is now making tons of money and they're doing fine. Problem is that Forrest, who has teamed up with his dad. Yeah. Is an asshole. I mean, I'm not surprised at the whole like in jail stuff. Yes. He's eager to take credit for the Milky Way because he's like, that was my idea. And his dad mm-hmm. was like, I know what I like, but I, I made it. Did it. Like, yeah, like you didn't, you didn't okay. Like you were and, a smart ass about a milkshake and yeah. I actually made a thing. Yes, I actually made a thing. So yeah, so he's eager to take credit for the Milky Way. He's pushing Frank to expand and basically launch like all out war with Hershey's. He ends up demanding, demanding a third of the Mars company. Mm. And Frank is like, you know what? You fucking suck. Here's $50,000. I'll give you the rights to Mars in Europe if you go away. Yeah, fuck off yeah and yeah. Forrest is like fine then i will and Forrest goes to switzerland oh mm-hmm. where <laughs> nestle is headquartered sure he goes into nestle and he's like oh i'm just a random american who's decided to live here in switzerland and wouldn't mind a job working at your lovely candy factory mm. and the guy is like i mean it's not nestle but the the dude who's doing the hiring at nestle is like do you have any kind of candy making experience and he Forrest is like not at all but i would love to sweep your floors or something like that i just and the guy's unfortunately like, <laughs> the 
audience can't see your little pantomime <laughs> that you're doing. <laughs> it's all very like, I don't know anything. So this guy gives Forrest a job. Forrest learns everything he can about candy making from Nestle. Yep. Quits. And then he opens, get a hold of this company name, <laughs> Food Manufacturers. The, yeah, creativity <laughs> is maybe not his strong suit. <laughs> It just seems like a very literal person. (laughs) Yes. So he opens up food manufacturers in Slough. Okay. Which any office fans will know as the location of the original British office. Yes. Yes. And there he launches the Mars Bar, which is simply a slightly sweeter version of the Milky Way. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. He also launches the British version of the Three Musketeers, which his dad has been doing in the US, Mm. which Forrest calls the Milky Way. And to this day, I believe the Milky Way is a slightly, the, I'm sorry, the Mars bar is a slightly sweeter version of a Milky Way. And the Milky Way is a three Musketeers in England. Weird. Yes. You know, I haven't had, I mean, I've had Milky Ways recently and mm-hmm. um, definitely like Hershey bars. I don't think I've had like a three Musketeers since I was probably like in elementary school. I was never a fan of the three Musketeers. That's like a weird consistency. Well, because it was just nougat and chocolate. Yeah. And it was, I, you know, if you give me nougat and chocolate versus nougat and caramel and chocolate, get out of here. Well, and throw, throw a couple peanuts in there. You've got like. Oh, we're off to the races. Yeah. Um, okay. So, <laughs> so that's what's going on with Forrest in Europe when he's, you know, being an unimaginative dick. Mm-hmm. So post-World War One, the troops all come back craving food that comforted them in the trenches namely mm-hmm. chocolate and yeah. that creates a demand for candy bars the like all the troops and i'm sure they're like fucking suffering from ptsd too and so sure. like, just give me a little bit of chocolate right now sugar gets the literal least we could do yeah literally the least we could do sugar gets yeah. deregulated because you know it had been being rationed it gets deregulated right. and the price falls from 22 cents a pound to five cents a pound by 1920 there are forty thousand candy bars on the market mm. Forty thousand different like, kinds like of different candy companies. bars okay yes this is when you start getting oh henry's and charleston shoes and clark uh-huh. bars and all that stuff and they're all looking to get a piece of hershey's profits and it creates what food historians call a chocolate gold rush <laughs> so they say yeah. like much like when everybody was moving out west to find gold after world war one you have all of these people that are trying to make a candy they're just yeah. they all like i said they all want a piece of that pie by 1927 third-party sales account for 20 percent of hershey's revenue and mars is hershey's biggest customer hershey is feeling the pressure they're now starting to feel the pressure from mars yeah. so they're they like, open pandora's box and now they're mm-hmm. reaping the Yeah. So Hershey is like, okay, well, we need to start making some new products. It is, I think, around this time that they release the Hershey's Kiss. They also release Hershey's Syrup and the Mr. Good Bar. I am a big fan of the Hershey's Kiss. um, Interesting thing about Hershey, Pennsylvania, the street lamps are shaped like Hershey Kisses. Oh, that's that's Mm -hmm. cute. It's mm-hmm. a little less tacky than our aliens down in um, Roswell. But it is, it's like, you know, the streets are like Cocoa Drive, Chocolate Avenue. <laughs> like, I mean, it's, yeah. they went full hog. 
with sure. the branding on this town, which kind of kind of hard to blend them. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. So um, yeah, so they do the kiss, Hershey syrup, and Mr. Goodbar. Meanwhile, Mars releases a Neapolitan nougat candy bar called the Three Musketeers. Mm-hmm. And they create a Milky Way with peanuts named after a horse that Frank owned called Snickers. Snickers. Uh... Mm-hmm. Brilliant. And there we go. Yes. <laughs> Mars is what, making- By the way, uh, pause real quick. The Mr. Good Bar, that's mm-hmm. just basically like a Hershey's bar, but like is, it's like rice or something in it. Like, it's peanuts. Is it Crackle. Peanuts? Okay. Crackle is- Ah, uh, that's what I'm thinking of. Okay. Crackle is the Rice crispy one. And Nestle's version is, of course, the Crunch Bar. Right. Okay. Okay. Yes. okay. Yeah. Also, the miniatures, Fun. another fun fact about this, the Hershey's miniatures, the little bar, which is like one of the only places you can actually get a crackle. Uh-huh. Those were originally Hershey salesmen would go out to candy stores and be like, do you want to carry Hershey's candy? And they were like, I don't know. And he was, they'd be like, here, take some samples. Mm. They were like yeah. business cards. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Man, you're, you're right. I The only time I you I ever get a crackle is with like halloween candy yeah i mean never see it in stores and that might that might be a regional thing Mm -hmm. so if we have people in other parts of the country who are like i just bought three crack full-size crackle bars at the grocery please let us know (laughs) yeah because i'm moving there tomorrow (laughs) (laughs) again on a diet very hungry Um, So at this time, Mars is making the modern day equivalent of $460 million a year. Hershey's making modern day equivalent of over $600 million a year. Wow. Meanwhile, there's a guy in Chicago. His name is Otto Schnurring. He's a former piano salesman. Okay. He buys a bunch of used equipment to make candy. He gets Mm -hmm. himself deep into debt. The market is fully saturated. He's got this German sounding name that he knows nobody's going to want to buy candy from. But he's like, you know what? I've got a can-do attitude and a bunch of ideas. So Mm -hmm. instead of quitting, I'm going to do a bunch of market research on my competitors. Okay. So like I mentioned before, candy was regional. Everyone was using the same ingredients, but just slapping a different name on it. Right. You know, Otto is this master salesman who knew that success wasn't just about having the best product on the market, but actually probably had more to do with showmanship than anything else. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So he makes a candy that is, it combines sweet, salty, bitter, umami, and sour flavors. Hmm. And he gives it to a couple of people. He's like, try this, try this. And they're like, oh my God, this is amazing. And he's like, yeah, I know. And he prepares to mass produce it in a factory with air conditioning. This is unheard of at the Mm -hmm. time. We're going to come back to auto in a bit, but I want to mention that air conditioning means like before air conditioning was everywhere, if you had a chocolate factory that didn't have air conditioning, you couldn't make chocolate during the summer. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Because your chocolate would melt. Mm-hmm. Right. But Otto's got this company fully decked out with air conditioning, which means that he can take this weird, sweet, salty, umami, bitter, sour candy that he's made and make it year round. Real quick, remind me, I think you've explained it to me before. What exactly is umami? Umami is, is savory, but hold on. Let me, I'm just going to, I'm going to look it up so I can give you the actual real definition. Uh, it's savoriness. One of the five basic tastes. Just 
described as savory and is characteristic of broths and cooked meats. So mm-hmm. savory, but not like salty, like not like full on salty. It's like yes. a step down. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Hold on. Let me see. Cause there is the thing that it's like, cause it's a, I believe it is a Japanese word and it has like this really lovely meaning. I can't find it. Oh, well cut all that out. Um, (laughs) There we go. (laughs) Okay. So like I said, we're going to come back to Otto in a second. Also happening at this time, Hershey and William Murray invest in a round barn to improve conditions for the cows that Mm. they're getting their milk from. And again, Hershey is like happier cows, more milk. There we go. He's like, he's like a hippie before the hippies. He really is. He's like, (laughs) if everybody is happy, everybody will do good work. So he's got this like cool round bar that makes for happy cows, but it also takes like a ton of money Mm -hmm. to run. The round barn is being run by a local hardworking dude in Hershey, Pennsylvania. This guy who's running the round barn, he has 10 kids. He's got another on the way. Mm-hmm. And one day, Mary shows up at the dude's house and he's like, Hey, you're awesome. And the round barn costs too much money. So mm-hmm. we're closing it down and you're fired. Mm-hmm. And this dude, known as HB to his family and friends, knows everything about Hershey's. Because he's been working okay. for them for forever. Yeah. And he's actually been experimenting with making candy in his own home. Mm, okay. okay. also want to remind you that at this time, prohibition is going on. Sure. And so people can't drink. So they're like, please give me something. Yeah. And so chocolate. Just, yeah. Devouring yeah. chocolate. So HB tries his hand at candy making to support his family. He thinks maybe I can bring in a little money doing this, a little small operation, do that. Mm-hmm. He like tries to make some chocolate covered cantaloupe. That doesn't go over real well. <laughs> he makes like some chocolate covered marshmallows and he's, he's able to sell some of it to local shops in order to feed his family. Mm-hmm. He also starts experimenting with an obscure food product called peanut butter. Uh. Peanut butter at this time was actually a health food. It was developed as a protein dense alternative for people who couldn't digest meat. Mm. That, that, that is what it is, I guess. It is what it is. Yes. Yeah. So, but like nobody really knows it, you know, and yeah. You know, but HB is like, well, maybe there's something to this. Maybe, I, maybe I can do something with this. So he's trying to figure out if there's anything to the idea of combining chocolate and peanut butter. But he's having a hard time. Uh, mm-hmm. You see, the chocolate keeps pooling around the peanut butter as it cools. He's making like little peanut butter balls and mm-hmm. like trying to like dip them in chocolate. But the chocolate runs off of the peanut butter as it's cooling, and then it pools around the bottom. It's not getting evenly coated, and he's just like, you know, these don't look good, and like, yeah, it's just not working. But one day he decides to try like one last thing. He takes a regular confectioner's mold Mm -hmm. and he puts down a small layer of chocolate, layer of peanut butter, and a final layer of chocolate. Because Mm -hmm. the whole thing is in the cup of this mold, it stays together and the chocolate is evenly coated and the Mm -hmm. peanut butter cup is born. By the way, Mm -hmm. HB stood for Harry Burnett. Harry's last name was Reese. Yep. I wondered if you were going there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Reese takes out a loan. He takes out loan after loan to industrialize his candy making because this is insane to me. It is insane to me to think about a time before peanut butter and chocolate. Yeah. I mean, I literally was just at the movie watching Nope the other day Mm -hmm. and like got a big old bag of Reese's pieces. Cause like, to me, that's like, that's movie viewing to me is like, you got your fucking drink and your Reese's Mm -hmm. pieces. I've got a fucking box of Reese's pieces right here in my room because sometimes Mm -hmm. 
I need something sweet um, <laughs> after the show. In Bar addition superior to, the, to in addition, by the way. <laughs> in addition to the bag of mini Twixes that I also demolished <laughs> in the writing of the story. Well done. But, but yeah, he's like, okay, you know, like, I think you can do this. Everybody that he's like, try this peanut butter cup. They're like, oh my God, this is incredible. Yeah. So he's like, I think I have something here. So he takes out, like I said, loan after loan to industrialize his candy making. Mm-hmm. Um, he even buys his own peanut roasters so he can do like everything in-house. Reminder again that he like, I don't know if he lives in, but he lives very, very close to Hershey, Pennsylvania. (laughs) Just opening up shop right next door. Yes. So he buys these peanut roasters, but every batch of peanuts that they roast come out over roasted. So they're like a little burned. Mm -hmm. And instead of like wasting time and money looking for a solution, Reesh just is like, nope, this is the standard for a peanut butter. Now it's a little over roasted, which results in a peanut butter that is smokier and richer than normal peanut butter. And Mm -hmm. Scotty, I want to see if you agree with me. I feel like this is true. Reese's peanut butter does not taste like peanut butter that you get out of like a GIF. Yeah, you're right. I I haven't thought about it, but now that I'm sitting here thinking about it in my head, it definitely is different. It's different. Yeah. Yeah. So off he goes to make his peanut butter cups. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's check back in with Otto and see what he's been up to. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So he's got this, like I said, this big refrigerated factory, a big refrigerated factory where he's making this crazy five taste candy bar that everybody's like, this is really good. And it Mm -hmm. needs a name. You know, he's like, I need a name for it. So legend Uh goes that he overhears his employees listening to a baseball game on the radio. And when he asks, when he's like, shouldn't you guys be working? One of the employees is like, I, yes, but Babe Ruth is like up to bat. And can we just like listen for a sec? And Otto's like, ding, ding, ding. Yeah, ding. go yeah. go back to watch, like go back to listening to your fucking baseball game. Now, again, Otto isn't the most inventive candy maker. He actually ripped this recipe off from a, one of these other regional candy bars. Right, yeah. <laughs> but he's great with business. Yeah. And he knows that Babe Ruth is one of, if not the most famous men in the country. Yeah. And he knows that if people associate his candy bar with Babe Ruth, they'll buy it. So Otto goes to Babe Ruth and he says, can we use your name for this candy bar? And Babe Ruth says, yeah, for this amount of money. And Otto's like, fuck that. So he's like, no, okay, never mind. Thanks. Bye. He goes and he tweaks one letter, changing the E in Babe to a Y. And he names his candy the Baby Ruth. Yeah, which, by the way, my least favorite candy bar. <laughs> not a fan. The chocolate in a Baby Ruth is not good. No, it's really not. It's not. It's like really waxy. It's always yeah. looks dusty. Well, regardless, Otto's right. People buy the candy just because they associate it with Babe Ruth. Mm-hmm. He That's contracts, shady as fuck, but smart. Mm-hmm. He con- He contracts a plane to airdrop Baby Ruth's all <laughs> over Chicago. Like little Sounds... parachuted Baby Ruth's. I was going to say, because otherwise descending. it seems dangerous. Yeah. And Babe Ruth is like, the fuck? So he turns <laughs> around and he announces that he's going to be releasing his own candy bar called the Ruth Home Run Candy Bar. <laughs> Okay, Otto's like, not so fast. And he sends Babe Ruth a cease and desist letter (laughs) saying that Ruth's own candy bar was named too closely to his candy bar. And he then is the balls on this guy. (laughs) He then goes on to say, the baby Ruth is actually named after Grover Cleveland's daughter, Ruth, who died of diphtheria <laughs> when she was 12. <laughs> uh, it's basically like calling Babe Ruth a dick. Yes. Yes. You're <laughs> taking candy, candy legacy from Grover Cleveland's dead 
daughter. <laughs> the courts are like, yeah, that sounds legit. And they rule in Otto's favor. Oh, man. <laughs> and Babe Ruth is like, okay, I mean, well, I guess Otto I'll just is... fuck off. <laughs> clearly, Otto is the true villain of this story. <laughs> Good grief. At this point, the baby Ruth is like quickly closing in on the number one candy spot. But also about this time, Hershey has been, Milton Hershey has been in talks to join what would have been the largest food conglomerate ever. It was mm-hmm. supposed to be a conglomerate that was Hershey's, Kraft, Heinz, Colgate, and Palm Olive. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Pretty fucking big. Yes. Just as the papers are being finalized, the stock market crashes. Oh, no. Suddenly, a quarter to half of the American population are unemployed, and no one has extra money for candy now. Right. Otto, whose company was the Curtis Candy Company, by the way, he is in trouble because he didn't have a financial buffer to weather the depression. Mm, And his board is like this close to ousting him. Yeah. Hershey's profits drop by half. Reese. Yeah. Reese. is so behind on his loan payments Hmm. that a warrant gets issued for his arrest. (laughs) And when the cops show up to his house, he's like, bye. And he (laughs) like exits the back door. He skips town. Nice. Yes. I will say I'm rooting for him, by the way. Yeah. In case anybody is like, he's got like 11 kids and all that stuff. He just goes away long enough to secure another loan to pay off his debtors. And then he comes back. Yeah. He doesn't doesn't, abandon his wife. He doesn't like go to Tahiti or something. No, 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 no. Many other smaller companies just close for good. They just, they just, they die in the depression. The major names in chocolate survive the depression by the skin of their teeth. Mm-hmm. When Reese returns home, he throws all of his energy into only making peanut butter cups. He does away with the cantaloupe. He does away with the marshmallows. I mean, he does away it's with about all time. of it. Yes. <laughs> He's like, I'm doing, I'm doing peanut butter cups. He sells them individually wrapped mm-hmm. for one cent. Wow. And he's like, kids, go like his <laughs> his his army of children. <laughs> like, go sell these fucking peanut butter cups. And their biggest customer is the employees at the Hershey factory. <laughs> nice. They're they're nuts. They're nuts for these peanut butter cups. So Reese is at home one day when his former employer, William Murray, stops by and is like, So you're selling chocolate candy to Hershey employees. Mm-hmm. And then Reese is like, kind of, <laughs> yes, but you know, this sounds like it's about to be the beginning of like a, a, a bad story, but it's not actually because Milton has sent Mary over there to be like, let's make a deal with Reese, hmm. give a Hershey exclusive chocolate rights. We will turn you into a national brand. Nice. Reese I like gets, this. I like this Milton character. I know, man. Like he's not a bad dude. He's really not. Reese gets to be backed by Hershey's and Hershey gets a cut of Reese's profits. Yeah. Again, fair. Mm-hmm. Win-win. Uh huh. Sales of Reese's peanut butter cups soon surpass all other candy bars. Mm-hmm. And I mean, again, when you think that they are being sold for one penny. Yeah. It's just insanity. Yeah. BT dubs another thing to make you like Hershey even more. He vowed that he would not lay off a single employee during the depression. Mm. And he kept his word. I was going to ask. He kept his word. Good. He kept his word. He put tons of money into building a sports arena, a luxury Mm. hotel, and an office block in Hershey, Pennsylvania to inject money into the local economy and shield his employees from the worst of the depression. Wow. 
Yeah, I think a lot of that was his own money. Mm-hmm. So don't uh, feel guilty eating your Hershey's bars. Yeah, I mean, I think there might be some other things that you could feel guilty about that have to do with like, I don't think Hershey's bars are very green. I don't think chocolate, yeah. chocolate in and of itself is not very green. I'm sure it's not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I don't know what labor conditions are like in the countries where they're getting the chocolate from. So right. stuff like well, that. And also, they're all big multinational conglomerates now. It's not the same company that it was back then. Absolutely. So that's what's going on. And we are approaching World War II. Right. So as World War II is launching, Britain is like, yo, if you're a foreigner, we're going to increase your taxes. Mm-hmm. And Forrest Mars, who's been fucking around and finding out in Slough <laughs> with food manufacturers, <laughs> <laughs> is like, I better get out of here. So he returns to the U.S. and he immediately heads over to Hershey's. Okay. I want to also say here that Frank Mars, his father had passed away in the 1930s. And when that happened, Forrest got one third of Mars. Okay. So he's in control of one third of the Mars company. He comes back to the United. He's also got food manufacturers <laughs> still doing its thing in Slough, but he comes back to the U.S. He goes to Hershey and he goes to, to William Murray and he's like, how are you doing? And Murray's like, good. I, I must have missed you at your father's funeral. And Forrest is like, um, cause I wasn't there, but look <laughs> at these candies that I have in my pocket. And they've been in my pocket since New Jersey mm-hmm. and they're little spherical balls of milk chocolate covered in a hard candy coating Hmm. they are smarties okay a popular european candy forrest asks Mary how his son bruce is doing and Mary is like oh bruce has gone into finance and forrest is like well that's dumb um (laughs) and then he's like you know i would really love to make these little candies here in the u.s Mm -hmm. what if just spitballing here what (laughs) if bruce partnered with me and we made them together hey we could even put our initials on them and the Mm. m&m was born ah Mm -hmm. okay so my whole thing about reese's pieces being superior to m&m's holds true because like reese is an obvious hero and fuck forest like he seems like a total dick yes and we've barely scratched the surface (laughs) (laughs) truly Muri is like, that sounds like a swell idea. And is like, Bruce, say goodbye to Wall Street. Here's your new candy making job. (laughs) Forrest, though, like I've said, is a real son of a bitch. He only brings Bruce Muri in to get Hershey's backing, William's vested interest in the candy, and access to William Muri's fancy DC contacts, who Mm -hmm. will surely be wanting, because he knows he's come from Europe, he knows that a war is brewing, and he knows that William Muri can help him get military contracts. Mm. and he basically figures that like once he gets bruce mary on board they can do the m&ms and then he's just gonna push bruce out and he'll have m&ms all to himself right m&ms do in fact get a huge military contract to provide soldiers with the candy coated chocolate Mm -hmm. um hershey also gets a contract and Mm. they produce more than one million candy bars for the troops they're also awarded several military awards for their contribution to the war effort i think Mm. i read somewhere that every single hershey employee got an award for their contribution to the war effort oh wow uh-huh. That's cool. I'm sure you have heard the story about the U.S. troops who went into one of the concentration camps and the soldier hands a little girl a Hershey bar. Yep. Because of that, Hershey's chocolate becomes a symbol for liberation across Europe wow. without 
ever selling a single fucking candy bar over there. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know the, I wasn't even sure that that was a true story. Mm -hmm. Milton Hershey passes away on October 13th, 1945. And he has like handpicked his successor, you know, Mm -hmm. everything's, everything's going good. But after his death, there is talk of expanding to Europe before Cadbury, Roundtree, the other like European chocolatiers are able Mm -hmm. to like build, you know, get back on their feet. Right. But the price of cacao beans is skyrocketing Mm. and Hershey's profits are hurting a little bit. Okay. So I have to, I have to make a side note here as well, because this is important to this part of the story. The main stockholder of the Hershey's company is the Hershey School for Orphan Boys. Mm. That's that's the main stockholder. They're the ones who are making, I think, kind of like the most money off of Hershey. Wow. And it's I an mean, orphanage. I mean, <laughs> this guy's just like, can we, can we, like, I'm not a Catholic, but can we make him a saint? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Because they're like, well, we don't like uh, cacao beans are skyrocketing and profits are hurting right now. We're going to press pause on expanding into Europe, Uh which is a decision that will haunt them for decades. Okay. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, M&M sales are tanking and Forrest (laughs) is basically bullying Bruce over this. Like there's a story where it's like a sales report that had come out. Like Bruce is in the bathroom and he comes out of the stall to find a copy of the sales report taped to the bathroom door because it hadn't (laughs) been going well, which failure written on it in like big red letters. (laughs) And Bruce is like, what the fuck? Fuck, I don't dude. even want this fucking job. I, I, I don't want to be here. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> Fuck this. Well, because he was probably like working finance and Wall Street and then the crash yes. happened. So he's just like, yeah. Yeah. He's like, I'll take whatever. Fine. I'll go make chocolate with this asshole um yeah so bruce finds this thing and is like what the fuck and forrest is like you're pathetic you're the worst you know what i'm pulling you off of this and you have to go and essentially be like a traveling salesman for m&ms and like trying to sell m&ms to like shops and stuff damn you know or he says like that's what you can do or you can quit and bruce is like eat a dick eat a whole bag of dicks (laughs) i quit and he sells his portion of the m&m's company to forest for a million dollars okay forest tries everything that he can think of to get m&m's back to their wartime popularity because they were Mm -hmm. they were like they were doing really really well yeah and he eventually is like fuck somebody bring me a madman and they bring in a dude from a new york advertising agency to revitalize Mm -hmm. sales this advertising guy is like hey so here's your problem kids love m&m's but kids don't buy candy their parents buy candy for them Mm -hmm. and parents didn't grow up on m&m's they have no clue what your fucking candy is about yeah so this is what we should do we need to rethink the way that we're advertising m&ms we need to target parents by Uh saying you can buy our candy knowing that it's not gonna your kids aren't gonna get chocolate all over your furniture because m&ms melt in your mouth not in your hand (laughs) yeah that's some Don Draper shit right there. It's some Don Draper shit right there. <laughs> this guy also suggests TV ads with animated M&Ms and like the M&Ms will have different personalities. Mm-hmm. Um, like the different colors will. M&Ms is also just about to launch peanut M&Ms at this point as well. Okay. So they do all this stuff, demand for m and soar. And by 1956, M&Ms is bringing in more than $40 million a year. 
Okay. Hershey tries to fight back with their own candy coated chocolate. It was like a kind of football shaped chocolate coated mm. in candy called the Hersheyette, but it's not that good. And well, apparently the candy shell turns rock hard after sitting on the shelves <laughs> for a couple of months. So you can't even like eat them. Not, not good. I was going to say, there's probably a reason why we've never heard of the Hersheyette. The Hersheyettes. Yes. Um, and another thing is, is that Hershey like isn't at this point and never has advertised. And it was actually something that Milton was really adamant about. He was like, we're not advertising in newspapers. We're not advertising on the radio. People know our product. They're going to buy it. Okay. And like, I mean, he was kind of right. You know yeah. what I mean? I mean, at they least for a very long time. Yeah, yeah. They eventually get into advertising. But even if you think about it now, you don't see it. You'll see some, you'll see like Hershey kisses and stuff. I was just saying for the holidays. I, I remember like the holiday Hershey kiss ads, but that's mm-hmm. kind of it when I think about it. Yeah. Like Hershey like, syrup. But I don't think I've ever seen an ad for Hershey syrup. I mean, maybe I have, but it's not like I can tell you. I heard an M&M's ad on a podcast today. Right. Well, I mean, you we know all I mean? know the fucking Snickers ads. And, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I remember so, the Reese's Pieces ads that were the tie in to. Um... Hold on. Hold on. OK. Before <laughs> you go, before you get there. Um, right. So Hershey isn't doing a lot of advertising, but of course, meanwhile, Forrest is figuring out how he can take over his dad's old company, Mars, because he Mm. owns a third of it, but he doesn't own all of it. Right. In the mid 1960s, Hershey's gets word that Reese is thinking of selling to the British American tobacco company. Okay. Okay. Reese is, Reese's are really well known in the mid Atlantic States, but not really a lot outside of that. Okay. But Hershey's is like, we think Reese's could do really, really well coast to coast if we can just get them out there. So Hershey's offers Mm -hmm. to buy Reese's for $23 million. You also need to understand that at this time, Reese's is still like a family operation. Yeah. It's just like the dude who used to like take care of the cows. mm -hmm. And like, they're just making the peanut butter cups and, and they're like, it's it's too much work for us. And you know, if the price is right, like we'll sell and Hershey's like, well, we would like to buy it for 23 million. And apparently that was so much more than Reese's thought they could get for it. So they were like, let us think. Yes, we'll take it. Um, <laughs> meanwhile, Forrest is visiting his half sister, Patricia, mm. who's dying of brain cancer. Oh, God. And also happens get some- to own 41%. I was going to say, we're going to get some like terrible forest behavior here, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. Like, he's like, how are you? And she's like, cut the shit. I know why you're here. You <laughs> we want all my know shares. you're a dick. Yes, yeah. we all know you're a dick. I know you want my shares. And yeah. he's like, yes, I do. And she's like, cool. I will give you my shares if you promise me three things. Mm-hmm. And Mars, the forest is like, absolutely. Tell whatever, whatever you ask. And she's like, I want you to keep the Mars name. Mm-hmm. I want non-voting stock that guarantees income so her children can inherit it. Mm-hmm. And she says that she wants her husband to remain CEO. Forrest is like, absolutely, whatever you want. My loving sister who's dying of brain uh, cancer. She signs I, I just, the shares over to him and he immediately <laughs> fires her husband. Of course he does. 
Oh, he I goes mean. he goes into a stockholders meeting apparently and he's like or a board meeting and he's like I am a religious man and everybody is like what and he's like I'm gonna <laughs> tell you I, I want to pray with you guys right now and he gets down on his knees and he's like Lord send me Milky Way send me Mars bars <laughs> oh, send me Snickers and the board is like what the fuck is going on basically Forrest <laughs> is like we are focusing on nothing but Mars Snickers Milky Ways and mm. M&M's like we're going full force with these candies. I don't want to hear anything else about anything else until we are selling the number one candy in America. He also gives his employees a 30% salary increase with bonuses. The flip side to that is that 12 hour days become the norm. Yeah. I was going to say there's, I was saying Otto, what's his name was the villain of the story just because you ripped off Babe Ruth, but clearly (laughs) I was wrong. (laughs) I mean, Otto's just, Otto's just, he's just fucking smart. Yeah. We'll, we'll come back to him in a, in, in a little bit. Forrest also decides that Mars is going to stop using Hershey chocolate because they're still using Hershey chocolate at this okay. time. Uh-huh. And he basically declares all out war on Hershey's. Ah, uh, here we go. If Mars pulls out of Hershey's, Hershey's will lose 20% of its revenue, making Hershey vulnerable. Yeah. Mars eventually does pull its business from Hershey and it launches this decades long candy war that is honestly still going on today, mm-hmm. even though both companies are. Uh, mm, Hershey may have joined a, like another like Kraft Heinz, whatever conglomerate, mm-hmm. but I don't think that they were taken over by another chocolatier. Right. I think at any rate. They're still fighting this fucking war, mm-hmm. you know, doing their whole thing. Hershey itself does gobble up other candy companies like the European Kit Kat and Rollo makers. Oh. Um, Mars opens up other divisions that have nothing to do with candy, like Mars owns pedigree, like dog food. Really? Uh-huh. They also own Whiskas, cat food. Huh. I mean, I think and I knew it, that Pedigree and Whiskas was the same brand, but I would never guess that Mars. Owned. Yeah. Mars Incorporated is now its own conglomerate and they own a ton. Twizzlers. Mars owns mm. Twizzler, I think, or maybe Hershey. One of them. It doesn't fucking matter at mm. any rate. I'm fascinated by the fact that Rolo came from Europe because that's one of my favorites. I fucking love Rolos. Oh, they're so good. Oh, they're so good. <laughs> Okay, so if you look at everything that these two companies own, it is ridiculous. Yeah. They're everywhere. Um, Which is honestly the way that most things, you know, when it's like Procter & Gamble owns and it's like, yeah, that's like everything is like that. Right. You know, that's corporate consolidation. Yes. And also, I just want to let you know that if you're listening to this podcast and enjoying your like Amy's burrito bowl or that kind of a (laughs) thing, I just want you to know that Amy's is union busting. So Mm -hmm. just go and get just make your own burrito bowl. Yeah. A lot of go and buy a burrito from an actual like Mexican restaurant. A lot of the um the the crunchy like health foody organic things are actually pretty garbage in terms of their business practices. Oh, they're terrible. Tate's yeah. cookies, the really mm-hmm. thin cookies, they were deporting workers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember yeah. that. I mean, yeah, we all know bad. Whole Foods are weird fucking and Randy and libertarians like <laughs> they really are they're so weird um so while these two companies i'm gonna i'm gonna start to wrap it up here but while these two companies had this like super cutthroat rivalry and they still do they were actually instrumental in each other's growth Mm -hmm. um they were the biggest names in candy making you know everything else 
Otto and his Curtis company and everything, uh, but everybody I mean, else kind of fell away. Do um, Baby Ruths even exist anymore? Baby Ruths still exist. Yeah, probably but Curtis bought up is, by whoever. Yeah, yeah, pro- like probably honestly, like Nestle or something, probably. Yeah, which again. Nestle, not a great, you know, <laughs> not a great company. Yeah. Um, I feel like I've read, I don't know if you ran into this and I could be totally wrong, but I feel like I read something where like Nestle, because they're like Swiss during World War II was like up to some shady like deals with the Nazis and stuff. I mean, well, they would have been, I mean, Switzerland, which was... Right. You know, like I mean, that's where they were sending all that. We're neutral. Stolen, yeah. But that's where they were sending all the stolen Jewish money. So, yeah, that's the thing. So who knows? I wouldn't be surprised is all I'm saying. Allegedly. Yeah. Allegedly. 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 Uh, but like I was saying, while these two companies have this cutthroat rivalry and they still do, they, they were really instrumental in each other's growth and their competition actually spurred each company to experiment with new products and methods mm-hmm. and innovations. So I'm going to leave you with a couple of cool last little tidbits that like didn't really have a place in the story, but I think they're really interesting. After the depression, which Otto and the Curtis Candy Company like just barely survived, mm-hmm. he gets introduced to this new candy bar, which is like a peanut butter wafer covered mm. in chocolate. And he's like, this is a really good, this is a really good candy bar. I'm like, what should we, what should we do with this candy bar? And he puts it in a Shirley Temple movie, a movie called Baby Take a Bow. Mm. And it's the first product placement in a movie and that candy mm. was the Butterfinger. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I was wondering where Butterfinger like fit in because mm-hmm. I used to love Butterfingers. They hurt, I, they, they hurt my teeth now. I was a Fifth Avenue fan and mm. it's very, very hard to find Fifth Avenue bars now. Yeah, uh, I remember those. I haven't I seen them I think you can still buy them time. in Cracker Barrels. Huh. Interesting. Yes. Because, you know, Cracker Barrel has like old timey candy. Yeah. You know, um, like you yeah. can, I think you can also get like old Henry's and Charleston shoes and stuff there. Yeah. Fucking Cracker Barrel. Okay. <laughs> um, so Otto, even though like, you know, he's kind of forgotten, you know, mm-hmm. Curtis, Curtis Candy Company is not a huge name. Butterfinger has definitely been bought up by somebody else, as has right. Baby Ruth. But he revolutionized the way we sell everything. Yeah. In the U.S. For so, better or worse. <laughs> yeah, for better or for worse. That's that's his that's his legacy. Hershey tried to compete with M&M's. You know, they had their Hersheyettes, <laughs> um, but that didn't work out too well. But they actually found a way to compete with M&M's by introducing Reese's Pieces. Yeah. And they like exploded onto the scene with a good deal of popularity, but then they really fell off and they were really, really trailing behind M&M's mm-hmm. until a little movie called E.T. Yep. That's where I was going. Yeah. Spielberg had actually reached out to M&M's. It was supposed to be M&M's, but Mars Mm. wanted too much money. Ah, interesting. Mm -hmm. Another fun fact, it's not actually peanut butter inside Reese's Pieces. It's a peanut butter flavored fudge that holds up better in the candy shell. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering now, because like I was saying, I associate going to the movies. I always have since I was a little kid with eating Reese's Pieces. And I wonder if that comes from E.T. Because E.T. is the first movie I remember seeing in theater. It's the first movie I remember seeing as well. And I very, very quickly, Reese's Pieces became my favorite candy, so... Yeah, M&M's were the first candy in outer space, Mm. but Hershey's Tropical Chocolate Bar was the first candy to make it to the moon. They were in the pockets of all of the Apollo 15 astronauts. Uh. I was like, 
I wonder what a Hershey's tropical chocolate bar is. It goes, does it have like coconut or something in it? It doesn't. Mm-hmm. It's just a heat resistant chocolate that's resistant up to 120 degrees. Okay. <laughs> More weird science shit. Yeah. Yep. In 2016, Mondelez, which is the parent company of Cadbury, tried mow. to buy Hershey's mm. for $23 billion. Wow. Hershey was like, no. Nah. And apparently, I think it had something to do with the thing I saw was like it was denied by members of the trust. So I don't know if that school is still there. I mean, it wouldn't be an orphanage now because orphanages don't exist, but I don't know. So interesting. Last little tidbit I have for you is that Milton Hershey had purchased tickets to travel from Europe back to the U.S., on the Titanic. Mm. He ended up having to stay in Europe longer because business stuff came up and they rebooked their travel on the German ship, the SS America. A copy of the check that Milton wrote to the White Star Line as a deposit for a first class stateroom on the Titanic now resides in the Hershey Store Museum in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Well, wow. I mean, that was just clearly God being like, this This man is too good. We can't take it. He's too pure. <laughs> He's too pure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they need um, they need him down on earth. This is truly just scratching the surface of the chocolate wars. Um, mm-hmm. If you're curious to learn more, go check out the food that built America on Hulu and check out the Hershey versus Mars episodes of the business warriors podcast. Um, the food I had, I discovered the food that built America and I texted Scotty and I was like, I have discovered a show that has given me <laughs> so many ideas for episodes of the podcast. <laughs> and it's, it's in the very first episode, I, there's, this isn't spoiling anything, but in the very first episode the credits which got condensed which makes me really sad i wish they'd stayed but it's like you know it's like the credits the opening credits for the show and it's like titans of industry you know and it's like it's it'll put up like hershey in the hershey font Mm -hmm. and then it'll be like showing like okay hold on i have to go back and say this because what this show is it's like a like a crime reenactment show, but it's about food. <laughs> so you have experts. The guy, uh, Adam, what is his name? He did that show, Man versus Food. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who is one of my favorite food personalities. Like he, yeah. he is just so good. And <laughs> like, I, and I just like, and he loves food so much. Mm. Just a great, great guy. And I think actually only quit doing man versus food because he was like, I'm, I'm ruining my body. Like I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm like, like he would have to do like vegan detoxes and stuff after mm. filming because man versus food for anybody who doesn't know was, it was basically an eating challenge food. So. So uh, this guy, Adam, would go to different cities, find out whatever like each eating challenge there was, you know, like devour a plate of like the hottest wings in the world in under an hour. And we're going to put your picture up on the wall. And he would do them. So he was just putting his Yeah, that's not sustainable for. (laughs) Yeah. Anthony Bourdain was like, I don't I'm in awe of him. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know how he does it. Um, And like, I'm hope I hope he's taking care of himself. And I think that's actually why he stopped doing that show, which I loved Mm -hmm. mostly. I like I want him to come out with another show, but he's Mm -hmm. one of the food experts on food that built America. So there'll be like these experts, food historians and all of that stuff will be, you know, talking about these people and then it will cut to these like reenactments. <laughs> and they're so good. Like they're so cheesy and so good. <laughs> like there's a, when they're, when they're talking about auto 
And that he's got the baby Ruth and that, uh, you know, Babe Ruth comes out with his like home run candy bar. There's a thing where it's like that cuts to like an expert. He's like, so Otto sends like these cease and desist letters and is basically like, you can't do this. You can't take the name of our candy. And then it cuts to the reenactment and it's the guy playing Otto. And he like is sitting there with a glass of whiskey and he sips it. And he's like, uh-huh. he won't take my name. And then it like cuts to commercial. It's so good. It's so good. It's so good. <laughs> That's like the type of shit I love about air crash investigations. Yes, it's that's exactly what it's like. But so the opening credits will have like, you know, it'll be like a shot of like Hershey, like Milton Hershey, like like looking at a, a candy bar. And it'll be like Hershey in like the Hershey font. And then like Milton will come in on top of it. Oh, um, cool. But it talks about all sorts of stuff, all of these like innovations. You've got chocolate. They talk a great deal about the pizza wars that happened in like the Mm. 1950s and 60s in the U.S., which is super fascinating. Mm. Um, And everything, again, is like that'll show like it shows the like the McDonald brothers and it's like in the McDonald font. And then their first names come in on top of it. That's a story we should do. Like the early days of McDonald's is really fascinating. Yeah. The thing that cracks me up about this show, though, in the Point that I'm, um, you know, being very long-winded and making, but is they get to Colonel Sanders in the opening credits <laughs> of this show. And the shot, I haven't watched the episode yet, but I'm like, what the fuck is going on with the Colonel? Because <laughs> the shot of him is the Colonel, like younger, obviously, in what looks to be like a fucking frontier with like a <laughs> rifle. And he's like, <laughs> like shooting. <laughs> And some guys like running away. Like, I'm like, what is the story behind Kentucky Fried Chicken? Yeah, that's there better be a story. Oh, my God. Yeah. But throughout this, I also learned like I, of course, knew that Hershey was an actual person. I had no idea that Mars was a last name. Yeah, I I didn't either. didn't know about that. Bird's eye is a dude's last name. Didn't know about that. Another one that I think I'm going to do, which I'm not going to get into here, but another thing that I do think that I want to do is the serial wars. Mm. That shit is cutthroat. Oh yeah. We should definitely yes. do that one. Like there is, I, I know nothing about that or the pizza wars. Oh my God. It is like, I was watching this show and they were talking about what was going on with the serial wars. And I was like, you have got to be kidding me. <laughs> like, this is not what I expect from the food industry. Yeah. Like, I, you know, this is the type of stuff that I expect from like oil and steel. Yeah. I do not expect this from, from cereal. Yeah, yes. Um, so it's a really, really, really great show. Go and check it out, but also know that I'm probably going to tell another couple of stories from it. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, do with that information what you will. And yeah, I think I was telling somebody here about this podcast and I was, you know, kind of talking about some of the, some of the topics that we cover. And I was like, you know, I've covered like accidental foods and I've covered like the history of the Thanksgiving meal or the history of soul food. And I was like, I do a lot of, I do a lot of episodes (laughs) about, about food. Yeah. You've had, you've had the food, (laughs) you've had the food subjects pretty covered. I don't think I've done one yet. (laughs) I don't think so. I just think it's really, you know, again, it's sort of going along with this, which is something that you and I have talked about a lot is we take something like a Reese's peanut butter cup and it's like, what's a Reese's peanut butter cup? It's like, it's, mm-hmm. it's so deeply ingrained in our daily yeah, but life. There's a whole story to it. There's a whole story to it. And thankfully neither Reese's or Hershey, I believe ended in white supremacy. Or it, it doesn't sound like it. 
let's like knock on wood hope there isn't something uh, floating around out there that you missed (laughs) yes uh which is completely possible um you know and again not perfect men or companies by any stretch of the imagination but i was surprised to not find misogyny or white supremacy at the the end of the research for this particular story yeah well that's good for a change yeah no kidding all right gang well that's all we got well i'm not sure we're gonna get you back on before you come back i know but we're also coming up on you're gonna be coming back here real soon so yeah i'll be just a couple episodes away i've got thank you by the way to sarah tantlinger was on uh, last week uh that was uh good hopefully uh you horror fans and and hh holmes fans if he has fans enjoyed that one we've got another good one for the horror fans coming up here shortly yes um and then yeah then you're gonna be back in town and we'll just be yeah back to regular business hopefully yes hopefully all right i miss i miss everybody a lot thanks for letting me pop back in to my own podcast um letting you pop back in like yeah and as always stay weird stay curious and we'll see you next time bye bye so listen friends we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find might be true and that's the weirdest thing